by now, you're well aware that there are multiple sources on the Dance of the Dragons and the era that produced it. One of those sources really stands out, despite his lack of height, and that's Mushroom. His contributions are the, to the historical record are particularly entertaining and dramatic because he had a flair for humor paired with unusually intimate access to the private business of House Targaryen and those closest to them, like House Hightower, House Strong, and House Valarian. He's a source on what happened between Rhaenyra and Sir Criston. He reported on a lot of the drama between the Blacks and the Greens prior to the war. This is the person that coined the nicknames Broken Bones, the Butcher's Ball, and the Queen Who Never Was. His versions of the stories have to date been a major part of House of the Dragon, and I'm sure the showrunners and writers love to incorporate his version of events when possible because his are often the most entertaining, but they're not always the most accurate. But that's part of what we're here to talk about today. We also have a guest who will help us pick that apart, one who has a lot of real-world understanding and expertise on real-world sources, particularly from time periods that Westeros is the most similar to. This is certainly of particular importance because Mushroom frequently competes with other sources, differing substantially at times, which heightens mystery and debate, giving supplementary takes at other times, which helps us form a larger, more complete version of events. And of course, there are times where Mushroom is in agreement with other sources, which helps us gain certainty. As well, we must consider that though Mushroom and other sources are cited often, there are times when no sources are cited. This is sometimes because they all agree and it would be repetitive to point that out every single time. This would also happen when there's only one source because that also would be repetitive to cite every single time. We know where Mushroom was most of the time, however. So for example, when we hear about the doings of Rhaenyra and Daemon on Dragonstone just after the breakout of the dance, we can be fairly certain it's coming from him because he was the only source to have been witness or potential witness to what transpired there. But that doesn't mean he's telling the truth. With all these layers and levels to consider, no wonder we brought in a heavy hitter of a guest. However, in addition to helping us sift through all this, she's going to throw us a twist, the idea that maybe he didn't exist at all, that Mushroom might be a pseudonym. All that and more on this episode of History of Westeros. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome, everybody. Indeed, we have our excellent returning guest, Dr. Kavita Mudan Finn. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, right on. Yeah, we're going to have a great discussion today. You got a, a huge round of applause from folks for the last time you were on, and you've been around the a Song of Ice and Fire podcast circuit a bit. Why don't you speak to that for a sec? Yeah, I was on Learned Hands after the very end of House of the Dragon, and we had a great discussion about adaptation, about historical sources. Some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about today is related to things that I talked about on that particular episode, but it shouldn't. there shouldn't be too much overlap. There's going to be one or two things, but it shouldn't be too much. Cool. What is your, your day job? Describe that for everybody. Well, at the moment, actually, my day job is as a freelance editor and indexer of academic books, which is a very strange job to have. But <laughs> my background is in medieval and early modern literature and culture. I work primarily on England, but also on France and Italy. The period that I love most is sort of the 14th, 15th, 16th century, like that kind of 300-year 
clump is just full of hot messes and drama that I cannot get enough of. And full of things George took inspiration from. Yeah, like mm-hmm. big time. That's a hot oh, spot yeah. for, for his inspirations for sure. Mm-hmm. If you're watching live, you can also see that Shay is on camera today. And of course, we have Sean as well. So we got a, a, a nice group of four today. I was like, yeah, I have to, have to show up for, for Kavita. It's my favorite <laughs> guest. So yeah, yeah. I gotta, gotta be here. Right on. Thanks as well to our friend Nina, whose contributions are always so valuable to us this week on her blog. There's a post that is not to do with Westeros. It's on the Coburg family of Brussels, and it involves our friend Stephen Atwell, who's been a guest, I think one of the most frequent guests on the history of History of Westeros. <laughs> so that you'll want to check that out. <laughs> Nina usually writes about A Song of Ice and Fire stuff, but she writes about other things as well. And this is an example of, of a real world take. She's also had a recent post on what if Sansa had received the Wolfpack speech instead of Arya and how that may have affected her or not going forward at the time. It was relevant. This episode was voted on by patrons. Next week, we have the Battle of the Trident. And the week after that, we have Baylor the Blessed with Nina coming on live instead of her usual excellent behind-the-scenes work. And if this episode ends and you want to stay immersed, we've got you covered with some suggestions for topics related to this one. We'll be dropping names here and there throughout the flow of this one. Let's get started with our trivia question as usual. The quote is, they cooked it with mushrooms and apples, and it tasted like triumph. It's the second time mushrooms appear in the book. The first time is Catelyn and Sir Roderick eating at the Inn of the Crossroads. What is it in this phrase? They, they cook it with mushrooms and apples and it tastes like crime. What is it? Hmm. This is the second time we've focused on a source within the sources. The first being long ago with Septon Barth. And this is nothing like Septon Barth. And that's just because one was a court fool and the other is Septon. Though that is a start in describing why they're different. Looking at how we see historical detail within the story, usually the sources are all mixed together when presented. And though you might get a sense of biases and styles and attitudes, there's nothing quite like focusing on just one set of takes, looking for patterns and drilling it down and, and seeing it that way is a much different look. In this case, it's a often pretty large and frequently humorous set of takes, which is part of why this one is so special and worthy of an episode and our our guest. So let's get started with who was Mushroom? A dwarf three feet tall with an enormous head and an enormous member to go with it, if he is to be believed. Mushroom was the court jester and was thought to be a lackwit. Therefore, the worthies of the court spoke freely about him. His testimony alleges to be his account of the events of the years when he was at court, set down by a scribe, whose name we do not know. And it is filled with mushrooms, tales of plots, murders, trysts, debaucheries, and more, and all in the most explicit detail. Septon Eustace's and mushrooms' accounts are often at odds with one another, but at times there are some surprising areas of agreement between them. Hmm. That last line in particular is going to, sh- we're going to shine a light, a light on that today, but also that line about the nameless scribe. That is. Would you say, Kavita, that's part of your theory that maybe this isn't just one person or isn't who they say they are at all? Absolutely. Yes, that's a big part of it. The fact is, I mean, most of the sources that we get from medieval Europe in particular were written down by nameless scribes, Mm. or at the very least, even if someone whose name we know wrote them down originally, they were copied by nameless scribes. And one of the things that I think that 
we don't have in Westeros or in Essos, as far as we know, is the printing press. So anytime a source is copied, you introduce one layer of human error. So if assuming that the testimony of Mushroom has been copied five, six, 10, 12 times, the version that Fire and Blood is based on or the version that Fire and Blood is drawing from, who knows? Who knows how many scribes had gotten to it in the meantime? I would assume there's problems like, maybe not in, in this context for Westeros, although maybe George works this in in places that, that I'm not thinking of, where phrases just change like the word, a phrase, or there's some mm. meaning behind a certain sentence or, or a turn of phrase that, do, does it, that loses that meaning 100 years later, we would not know what that refers to or that it, it has more context to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like words change, phrases change, languages change. People get things wrong. Like there's one particular instance that I am... Oh, hi, here's my research assistant. Oh, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, she's very cute. She can come and hang out. Yes. Yeah. So there's one particular instance that I'm especially fond of talking about. And I brought it up in a couple of the essays that I wrote on House of the Dragon and Adaptation, where one, and this actually happened in a printed chronicle, not even a manuscript one. So you can imagine how much easier it is in a manuscript chronicle when you're writing it out. But in this particular chronicle, the number 17 was accidentally changed to the number 12, <laughs> such that a person who died in battle went from being age 17 to age 12. Whoa. And that's a huge <laughs> difference. Yes. Wow. Because 17-year-old dying in battle in 1460 is tragic, but not entirely out of the ordinary. 12-year-old dying in battle in 1460, that's noteworthy. Yeah, and if you read that wrong, you might think it was normal. You might think, oh, 12-year-olds in battle. Like, it's not that hard to mistake that as being, oh, I guess you, you take that and extrapolate and say, oh, 12-year-old in battle. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, not, they're not commenting on it being abnormal, mm -hmm. so it must be normal. But it's, a, it's an error, not a... Yeah. Just they didn't... A case where they didn't explain something that's normal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. A 17-year-old dying in battle is tragic. A 12-year-old dying in battle is a statistic. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rounding error. Yeah. That's an outlier. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, that's not supposed to be there. <laughs> so we'll build our way up to the full theory of Mushroom as we describe the more standard version, but it's a little more setup. Just the name Mushroom is evocative. Of course, most of the time when that word appears, it's the context of food, especially in A Song of Ice and Fire, because the character Mushroom isn't referred to in the, the main five books. Of course, he's frequently referred to in the world of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood. In fact, the word Mushroom appears more in Fire and Blood than it appears in all five A Song of Ice and Fire books because of this character, <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know, I don't actually see here, like you, you talk about how it's evocative. Yeah. But like... We all know what it's evocative, it, like of, right? Well, I just like like we're, we, I, I looked and I was like, you don't actually say it, but it's a very sexual. It evokes a lot. It evokes yeah. a lot. It's but sexual. I just go it's ahead drug and throw that culture. Out there. It's food. It's yep. poison. It's poison. It's tasty food. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, lots of stuff. Yeah, it is a lot of stuff, which I think is appropriate for this character because he is. There's a lot of ways to approach it. Like Kavita says, there's suspicions around his identity, whether he's telling the truth, whether why he, you know, what his reason for not telling the truth is, whether it's just embellishment or poor memory or the fact that he doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> Bran says there's a hundred kinds of mushrooms down in the Greenseer's Caverns. That's super evocative right there too, even though it's not exactly on topic. And of course, it's tempting to compare Tyrion to mushrooms. They're, they're dwarfs with wicked senses of humor, very sexual. 
Mm-hmm. One could even call Mushroom a fun guy. Oh, <laughs> I love it. She's fired. All right. You're out. Yeah, I'm fired. I'll show myself out. I would be such a hypocrite if I fired someone for fun. <laughs> But there, but there might not actually be that much more that Tyrion and Mushroom have in common. The stuff is mostly surface level. But we'll maybe we'll point out a few other things as we go on. There's a lot of things that they're really the opposite on, and that's more relevant here, I think, because no, like Cersei wasn't spilling her secrets around Tyrion. She was in fact very guarded with them, and because Tyrion is regarded as cunning and not very trustworthy by a lot of people, Mushroom. That's the key to Mushroom is that he was so unthreatening that he was around during things that you would never expect any witness to be around for. Let <laughs> like he was there when people were like banging each other. Like, why is anyone present for that? You know, but apparently, you know, he was there. So mm-hmm. that does that is interesting, if true. <laughs> so yeah, Maesters, Septons, they would never have that kind of access. It would make them uncomfortable, actually. Is particularly on the Blacks faction because that's who he was around the most. So he, he he has less to say about the Greens. Well, he has a lot to say about the Greens. It's just, well, we'd like to take our mushrooms more salted when <laughs> when in that scenario. <laughs> Tyrion would need spies to get the kind of information that Mushroom gets, you know. In fact, Mushroom would have made a killing as a spy if he wanted to be one. And you know, maybe he considered that. He could have, yeah, he could have gotten rich on that. <laughs> maybe that's why he was able to retire later. Yeah. Selling his secrets on the side. But still, those loose tongues, that's the reason why this episode exists, why he's so important. Here's a one final example that I think is important and one we have an actual quote for from Tyrion. The empty flagon slipped from his hand and rolled across the yard. Tyrion pushed himself off the bench and went to fetch it. As he did, he saw some mushrooms growing up from a cracked paving tile. Pale white they were, with speckles, and red-ribbed undersides dark as blood. The dwarf snapped one off and sniffed it. Delicious, he thought, and deadly. There were seven of the mushrooms. Perhaps the seven were trying to tell him something. For another time, we'd have to discuss why, look at the, the symbolism there. There's seven of them, but they look like werewolves, right? So just again, the, mu- the topic of mushroom, it's just a bajillion ways that it comes up in the story whether a symbol or whether in this case it's poison. He considers taking it himself. Then he has the non-poison mushroom trick from Illyrio that comes shortly after this. Then he actually gives them to Nurse to kill Nurse later. The point of this is all these things for most of us, we read all this before being introduced to the character of Mushroom. So we had all these examples of how George uses mushrooms in the story and how that applies to this character. A couple other examples, away from poison and things like that, just the way George uses mushrooms more generically Here's Varys speaking to Cersei and the small council. Have you ever considered that too many answers are the same as no answers at all? My informers are not always as highly placed as we might like. When a king dies, fancy sprout like mushrooms in the dark. This is super relevant because it's about multiple sources and just sources in general, right? Like that's this is a bullseye from Varys here. And he goes on to list the various rumors about Renly's death. Now, the one thing we can glean from that at the time, we of course saw it happen. So even if we hadn't, we would just, okay, well, they all agree that Renly's dead. The question is just how. And that's a lot of what we, we see in Fire and Blood, though. Certainly not always. Now, here's another example. That one was Vara speaking to Cersei. Now here's Cersei speaking to Sansa just before the Battle of the Blackwater. Quote. Another lesson you should learn if you hope to sit beside my son. Be gentle on a night like this and you'll have treasons popping up all about you like mushrooms after a hard rain. The only way to keep your people loyal 
is to make certain they fear you more than they do the enemy. Again, the, the metaphor used there, mushrooms after hard rain, is said in Fire and Blood several times as well. So I think George just likes that one, or maybe he's decided that it's a, it's a Westerosi saying. <laughs> what, what do you think, Kavita? So mushrooms grow in the dark. They grow after storms. They grow in secret places. They pop up unexpectedly and quickly. Many of them can kill you if you aren't careful. And it is not easy to tell the good ones from the bad ones. I'd say that sounds pretty close to our mushroom. Well said, yeah. (laughs) Very true. Just supposing that maybe it's just like a saying in Westeros. Mm. I, I like that more because just thinking about Cersei, who grew up wealthy in Casterly Rock, how much experience would she have seeing mushrooms sprout up after a hard rain? You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like, I think that's something she's heard, not witnessed. Mm-hmm. So I think it, and in fact, it's used elsewhere. I, I'm going to say it's a Westerosi saying. Yeah, it is more of like a farmer's mm-hmm. saying. Yeah, than like some of yeah. the nobles say. Yeah, it's a good point. I like that. Yeah, well said. One of my favorite examples, and it, it kind of summarizes all these together. It basically overlaps the different topics here. We have Tyrion being left in the dark after the Battle of the Blackwater when he's healing. And he, he says, my sister thinks I'm a mushroom. <laughs> That's a nice little summary of all that. Okay, so let's get into the historical mushroom. He was apparently at court already when Damon was named Master of Coin in 103. So he would at least be a teenager by then, if not older. We often do see like Hatchface was brought pretty young to Westeros, even though he clearly is a, had a very different vector for his development. He was, he was young. He was a slave. Mushroom was not a slave, as far as we know. He was fooled Viserys' court and possibly even before because my theory is we know Jaehaerys was depressed and we know why. There's a lot of tragedies in his life near the end. They may have been looking for things to cheer him up. Maybe that makes sense. Does that kind of fit for y'all? Do you have any other ideas for maybe when he appeared for the first time? Because that's my best guess. I actually wonder if he came from Old Town oh. when Otto Hightower came to court and Ooh. became Hand of the King to Jaharis. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a good call. A couple things here. One, I, I want to make this clarification that I haven't actually read Fire and Blood. So I'm trying to stay <laughs> unsullied for the second season of House of the Dragon. Just as our audience should know, we're going to try to avoid spoiling it. And so if I seem ignorant on some things, that's why. <laughs> and that might show my question here. How do we know when he first appeared? We don't. We don't. That's just his first first <laughs> time he's cited as appearing. But that citing, is that something that he said? That's the earliest thing that he referenced about himself being present that we know of? Is that Yes, I believe so. He cites himself being there being witness to that or refers to that. Okay. Yeah. So that's just the earliest thing he talked about. So we assume he must ostensibly he must have been there for that, but could have been there for longer yeah. before that. And but, could have be, and could yeah. be lying. Like that's always, with any of these cases, there, there's always the caveat that it might not be. When Rhaenyra first left for Dragonstone in 114 with Breakbones, Mushroom went with her. That's part of my theory that he was brought more for Jaehaerys than Viserys because he never really stayed with Viserys. Until Viserys got sick, there seems to be evidence that he was with Viserys more when his hand became a problem, which as you recall in the book, that was a much shorter thing. In the show, it was like the whole scene that was, his hand was a problem from episode one until he died. Well, he eventually didn't even have the hand, but you know what I mean? It was still a problem. So that was a much shorter span. That was more like the year 126. And apparently Mushroom stuck around and maybe tried to cheer him up through his health issues. But the fact that he left to go with Rhaenyra either means he just got along better with Rhaenyra or he was never really 
meant for Viserys in the first place. Viserys didn't need cheering. Well, maybe in a few spots, but for the most part, this guy was constantly throwing parties anyway. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like Mushroom maybe would have fit into all that. Fire and Blood, it's only mentioned, like it's mentioned that Mushroom at various times capered for the amusement of King Viserys, Princess Rhaenyra, and both Aegons the second and the third. There's no mention of Jaehaerys, but it doesn't mean that he wasn't there. Right. Because Damon being named Master Coin was after Viserys' death. Mm, and that was one of three. Yeah. So I think it might have been the same year. I think that's when the council was. Anyway, it's right around there. True, so yeah, it might have been. easily could have been there before. That's that's pretty clear, though it's not certain. So he's going to, what's interesting about him as well is that he would outlive pretty much everyone involved here, which is part of why I think he may have only been a teenager because if you add too many more years to him, you're talking about <laughs> someone in his 80s or 90s, which is not impossible by any means, but you know. Talking about him capering about so much. Yeah, <laughs> it gets less likely, yeah. <laughs> and of course, he lives on in a metaphorical sense because he was a source, right? Mm-hmm. So I have this question Kavita, is there anything in the real world about like a jester or an unusual source outside of the normal historians and academics and things like that? Well, not that we know of exactly, but there are kind of a couple of different things that are not too dissimilar. For instance, we have some accounts of the favorite court jester to King Henry VIII of England, whose name was Will Summers. It's one of the few instances where we actually have a name to go with this jester or this figure. But we don't really have anything that he wrote himself. We don't even necessarily know that he was literate. Uh-huh. And there are also, of course, there and there are records of different medieval and early modern monarchs who had attendants, if not necessarily jesters, with dwarfism. Mm-hmm. That was considered, I mean, horribly as it is, it was considered a status symbol, but it was a thing that's on record as having been done in a number of different royal courts, particularly Mm. in Spain, particularly in France. But Queen Mary I of England, whose mother, of course, was Spanish and whose husband was Spanish, is reported to have had a dwarf amongst her ladies-in-waiting. Do we have any idea why that became a status symbol? It just seems so odd. I don't know. Besides it being, you know, like you said, pretty terrible. It's just weird. (laughs) It, it is a weird thing, but it, it was, I mean, it, it's, it's, it pops up enough times in sources that it does seem to have been a thing that people did. Mm. Much like later on in the court of Marie Antoinette, she had this entire little village built where she would go and try to be left alone and pretend to be a shepherdess, which, I mean, it's sort of like 18th century cottage core, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but which nice. on the one hand, like, that woman has been maligned tremendously in the in after her death, and I don't know that she necessarily deserved it. But yeah, that that is that, royals had really weird hobbies. I guess is the takeaway. <laughs> My thought on that was that it would be something that's kind of rare, and it shows that your power might, must be far reaching to get to something that rare. You yeah, know, it's unusual. Like it's. That Pete, they, I'm sure that there were some monarchs who treated their attendants better than others, but it was kind of like part of a menagerie. Like, mm. the, the, again, like it's, it's awful, but it kind of is how people were viewed. Mm. Interesting. So we might also say one commentary about Mushroom is that his takes are overly sexualized. But could we argue that takes from septons and celibate orders like maesters are under-sexualized or maybe at least not framed properly or misunderstood? What, what do you think about that? I mean, my suspicion is, I at least think that in the case, in this particular case, looking not just at Mushroom, but also at Gildane, who is writing about Mushroom, mm. the Meister celibacy makes them even more likely to assume a sexual explanation oh, okay. for anything mm. because they assume that all women, and that's women with an asterisk, because it'd be, they could 
apply this to someone like Lenore Valarian. They could apply this to some like anyone who of any gender who is not a meister or a septon mm. are driven by a need for sex and more importantly, by an inability to control themselves. Like it's mm. this perception from the meisterly class that anyone who is not a meister is completely like a slave to their sex drive. Yeah, okay. So maybe they're just like more ignorant of it rather than... Well, which is basically what you said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Well, and also, okay. yeah, that, that, that yeah, makes. and and also, it there's a lot of that that contributes a lot to like they don't know how childbirth works. Yeah. They don't know how like <laughs> if a woman dies in childbirth, they just mention it as though it's nothing. It's like no, there are a lot of there are many many reasons why that could have happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just one death from childbirth yeah. isn't the mm-hmm. isn't the very that's not a de- that's not a cause of death. Yeah. That's a category. Yeah, there are things that yeah yeah there's yeah there's under underlying causes that are much more detailed and specific. And that's where something like the adaptational choices that they made in House of the Dragon come in because all we know from Fire and Blood is Emma Arryn died in childbirth. Period. So they had to choose and. Yeah. The fact that they took that and they made it into this incredible tragic linchpin for the entire season, that I think is an example of how kind of House of the Dragon takes a throwaway thing in Fire and Blood and expands it, not just in terms of plot, but in terms of theme. And that's what Mushroom is accused of doing at some times, just adding things here and there just to make it seem more interesting whether or not it actually happened. Now, of course, with fiction, you can, you can do that all you want. But we like the idea and to, to talk about sources. And I guess maybe what I was getting at that other point is they're le- maybe less likely to include detail, to go into the explicit detail of, especially the septums of like <laughs> specific sex acts and, and all that. But, but they do include it in Fire and Blood because they're including Mushroom's takes. But I, I wonder, but they always, maybe that's part of why they always say, well, this is Mushroom's take. We wouldn't write this. Yeah. <laughs> this is what Mushroom would say. This is not what we're saying. <laughs> we, serious academics, this is what Mushroom is saying. <laughs> Fire and Blood has this to say about this whole thing. Whereas Septon Eustace records the secrets of bedchamber and brothel in hushed, condemnatory tones, Mushroom delights in the same, and his testimony consists of little but ribald tales and gossip, piling stabbings, poisonings, betrayals, seductions, and debaucheries, one atop the other. How much of this can be believed is a question the honest historian cannot hope to answer. But it is worth noting that King Baylor the Blessed decreed that every copy of Mushroom's Chronicle should be burned. Now, that's clearly an example of a guy that was didn't like sexual content. Like, of all time, you know, he was number one on the <laughs> list. So, <laughs> Baylor, <laughs> the blessed had his way. He definitely included that in a list of burned books. Clearly, some of them escaped the burning. That's why the records exist now. I don't want to justify Baylor too much, but to be fair, it wasn't just sexual content, right? There was a lot of this stuff, aside from sexual content, that paints Targaryens in a bad light. It's so like yeah. extramarital affairs and sure. on and on, yeah, right? I guess so, that's true. Yeah, that's a good yeah, point. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily just him being like the morality police about it. Like, But I do think that was the root of it. Like, It was I, largely him being the morality police. I don't know that police, like, but, if it had just shown the Targaryens in a bad light, but never showed any like improper behavior, I don't know if I think Baylor would have targeted it. Like that might just be a happy accident. Well, here, here's something too to consider. Think of the cynical angle. When Baylor is announced or starts burning books, you're, you might have certain people that, that use him as a vehicle to erase certain knowledge mm-hmm. to say, hey, Baylor, you should have this one burned. 
You know, this oh, this yeah. one's real yeah. bad, King. Like, look at the, you'd find some pious <laughs> reason why. And then Beryl was like, yeah, throw that one on the burning pile too. You know, he probably wouldn't be that hard to convince on a lot of these cases. Yeah. Especially um, if like, a, I don't know, a book that's 300 pages, someone could read one awful line and, oh, yes, burn that one. And uh, he doesn't know. I was actually on a school board book committee where someone had done exactly that. They pulled like three random paragraphs out of a young adult book and were screaming about it in our local school district's library. And I had to come in and be like, no, this book is actually fine. This person is completely off the rocker. (laughs) (laughs) Context matters. Yeah, Context matters, guys. Yeah, I mean, that's... At work here, the maesters are quick to point out that this comes from Mushroom, but they still include it as part of the historical record. <laughs> Mushroom wouldn't have been too welcome at Baylor's court. I don't know that he was into having a fool of any sort, let alone let alone one that talked about sex all the time. He wouldn't didn't fit in particularly well with Aegon the Third either, who didn't have those proclivities or much of a sense of humor for understandable reasons. But clearly, Rhaenyra liked him because she kept him around, and maybe Damon as well because. If Damon didn't like him, he may have been like, get rid of that guy. And I don't know if Rhaenyra would have argued too hard to keep him if Damon was unhappy. And Viserys was clearly happy with him as well, even though he stayed around Rhaenyra the most. Kavita, you have some great notes here. Take it away on on this subtopic. There are plenty of medieval and early modern monarchs who tried to ban books or authors who said things that they just didn't like. Mm. Some were more insistent than others. But if we're talking specifically about banning books, the monarchs that I immediately think of are the Tudors. Mm. Uh, But it's worth keeping in mind that they were also the first English monarchs who had to deal with the printing press on a large Ah. scale. So, for instance, under the previous monarchs, Edward IV, Richard III, and at least for the first several years of Henry VII, who was technically a tutor, but didn't call himself that. There were only a handful of printers in the entire country, and pretty much all of them worked for the royal family in some capacity or another. But fast forward from there, from the sort of late 15th century to 1555. On the 13th of June, 1555, Queen Mary I issued an entire list of books that she decided to have banned because they were, quote, seditious and heretical within the borders of her realm. Mm. These were primarily Protestant texts. These were primarily religious texts. But there's also a couple of weird inclusions, such as Hall's Chronicle. Now, Hall's Chronicle refers to an English history of the 15th century civil wars that we now call the Wars of the Roses, thanks to the plays written by William Shakespeare, which happened to be based on the chronicles that were banned. So that's always a good time. But why were they banned? One, because the author was a vocal Protestant who applied a very specific Protestant angle to his history. Kings won battles not just because they were preordained, but because that preordination also fit within a much larger progress toward the end of Protestant time, which is beyond the scope of today's discussion. But in any event, it's not actually that surprising that a king would ban a history text, especially one that is as full of sort of scandal and raunchiness as mushrooms. For instance, like Baylor the Blessed, his grandmother was Princess Rhaenyra. So having all of these things about Rhaenyra in a text, who was his direct his direct ancestor, That's a good point. that might not have sat so well with this extremely pious monarch, like all of these stories about her sleeping with her uncle when she was 13 and all of that stuff. <laughs> he didn't like, like it, whether, yeah, you're right. Like that made him it, it wouldn't have looked, it's not good publicity one way <laughs> or the other. But the closest analog to the kind, the specific kinds of stories that Mushroom tells, because that's not what you find in Hall's Chronicle. Hall's Chronicle has a lot of stabbing, but not of that particular sort. So the closest analog to the kinds of stories that Mushroom likes to tell isn't 
historical so much as kind of historical literary. I have a whole rant about how historical and literary texts are kind of on the same continuum, but we don't need to get into that. Mm -hmm. The relevant takeaway is that written history is always in some sense a literary text Mm -hmm. in that it is taking a series of events and interpreting them in a narrative form. But if you're looking for the kinds of racy exploits that he's talking about in the medieval and early modern periods, what you want is correspondence, propaganda, or Boccaccio. Um, <laughs> I've, yeah. Gener- generic, uh, generic, specific. Yeah. <laughs> or if you want to look at, or you want to look at earlier historians, you want to be looking at the Roman historians or the Byzantine historians. Mm. You want to look at Suetonius, who was writing during the time of Nero. Mm. Or you want to be looking at someone like Procopius, who was writing under the emperor Justinian in Byzantium. And I have to give a hat tip to uh, Stephen Atwell for reminding me about Procopius because I'd completely forgotten about it. Oh, him. he's popping up but, all over today. Oh, to yeah, cut well, in and ask a question. Mm-hmm. What do you think the difference was? Do you think it was cultural that allowed those historians to write a bit more racy topics? Do you think it was just that that allowed that to stand the test of time or what? Well, partly, I mean, the Romans and the Byzantines are writing outside the Catholic Church. Mm. So that is definitely a part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, like, the Procopius's secret history was not authorized by anyone in the Byzantine Empire. It was just mm. there. And people read it. And that's why I think the Boccaccio comparison is also kind of an interesting one because Boccaccio, people don't think of him as a historian because he really wasn't, but he did write a number of things that ended up getting folded into histories, whether or not he necessarily intended to. Mm. Boccaccio's Decamerone, the Decameron, is a 14th century collection of 100 stories that were supposedly collected by a group of bored Florentine aristocrats who were holed up in quarantine during the Black Death (laughs) in the Tuscan countryside, which is a nice place to be held up during quarantine, let me say. Um, I wish I'd been there in spring of 2020. But because everyone is bored and either about to embark on an orgy that we don't hear about or has just finished an orgy that we don't hear about, both of which the Italian film industry has immortalized on screen a number of times, all the stories in the Decameron are somehow about sex. And this book was banned everywhere. No one was supposed to read it, but everybody read it anyway. Now, in case any of you listeners are planning to run off and read the Decameron, I do want to add a trigger warning because Boccaccio's idea of consent is firmly stuck in the 14th century. Mm. And as a bonus, he was also a clergyman with serious misogyny problems. Yeah, Boccaccio was a clergyman. He was a member of the Catholic Church and he wrote this stuff. So let's just say, yeah, that there is a tremendous amount of dubious shit in that book. So dead dove, whatever it is these days, reader beware. So as a side note, and I think Nina had a note about this as well, George has never mentioned a Westerosi or Essosi equivalent to someone like Christine de Pizan, a woman who was who looked at all of these misogynist texts and went, guys, shut up. Let me actually tell you how it is. And wrote a completely different text that is still read and that people actually read at the time and that people found interesting and that women read. We know women read it. Like a a text that pushes back against a lot of these misogynist tropes. We don't really see that in Fire and Blood at all. Right on. Well said there. Let's talk about the last... The the last brief era where Mushroom was around court before we get into some of the more specific material. Here's another quote referring to the man on my shirt here. Uh After the loss of his fingers, Viserys I never sat upon the Iron Throne again. Thereafter, he shunned the throne room 
preferring to hold court in his solar and later in his bedchamber, surrounded by maesters, septons, and his faithful fool, Mushroom, the only man who could still make him laugh, says Mushroom. (laughs) (laughs) I'm inclined to believe. I mean, he was funny like that. I can kind of like some things he says. I'm like, I don't know about that one. But yeah, I can believe that he could still make Viserys laugh. You know, uh, (laughs) that's that's my headcanon. What about y'all? Yeah, I think maybe Viserys would still laugh at children. His children, like the grandkids too, and whatnot maybe. playing, like, maybe, you know, maybe that. So. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. He also had a bunch of grandkids. He also had a bunch of children and grandchildren at that point. So I feel like watching Mushroom interact with the, with kids would probably make Viserys laugh. Mm. And he seems like an easygoing sort of guy anyway in, in Fire and Blood. So I imagine he just was happy to laugh. Yeah, and of course, even when on Dragonstone he would be coming back and forth a lot. Kavita, you have a note here about how maybe that was lost in the shuffle of the portrayal on TV. I think it was a little bit. I mean, partly this is, it's completely understandable reasons. Dragons are expensive to film and Mm. they wanted to sort of save them for climactic moments. And I get that. But one thing that I think House of the Dragon underplayed was how much time the Targaryens actually spent with or on their dragons. Because the impression I always had from Fire and Blood is that Rhaenyra in particular was constantly sort of flying between these different locations, King's Landing, Driftmark, Dragonstone, even Pentos, maybe even others of the Free Cities. We don't know. One of the things we don't really get from Fire and Blood is how fast do dragons fly? Yeah. How fa- How long does it take to get from one location to another? Because another thing that I confess I have been wondering ever since I first read Fire and Blood was during that 20-year period, like, 15 to 20 year period when Viserys was king, was he sending Rhaenyra or Aegon or Aemond eventually? Like, was he sending people out to do diplomacy on dragons? Because mm. we hear about Jaehaerys and Alysanne doing that, but we don't really hear about any other Targaryen monarchs doing it. That's a good point. The show sort of had Viserys downplay that we didn't want to send dragon riders. And in ep- right at the beginning of episode one, Rhaenyra's Flying her dragon. It looks like they're going to show this person who loves to fly her dragon a lot. So it was set up, but they didn't really continue with that. Almost as if Mm -hmm. one of the things she lost over time was that freedom, that youthfulness of having time to do that as responsibilities Mm -hmm. piled up. And then, you know, war and death and (laughs) (laughs) all that good fun stuff. I also think a lot about logistics, especially in like fantasy environments and like the idea of the different ways dragons could have, should have been used just helping clear paths for roads to be built, you know, Mm -hmm. just like a straight blaze of fire to Mm -hmm. clear a forest or transferring information back and forth. And I could see reasons why maybe that's not as spectacular of a story to tell or why maybe even the people who had dragons wouldn't lower themselves to those types of tasks. But it's the ability to get battlefield information back and forth across the ocean. Mm -hmm. It's possible that it is part of where the power of the Valyrians and the Targaryens came from, even if we don't see it on paper. And that might be part of why their power starts to wane when the dragons go away, not just the military might, but the ability to transfer information and materials, people back and forth. To me, it's like this underlying story. There's this (laughs) hidden element that we don't see, kind of like when you have armies gathered 
where's everyone pooping? Like, <laughs> that's part of the story that we just don't get shown, but I, it has to be dealt with. See, I'd love to see yeah. a Targaryen who, you know, strikes out on their own with their dragon and starts a landscaping Wants company. Wants to be a little more something. utilitarian. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like, like has, has something to start a business with. It's called firescaping. <laughs> firescaping. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, I could totally see that having been a big part of how the King's Road got built. Mm-hmm. Like, if you have a bunch of dragons and you have a giant forest and you need to blaze a path mm, through the forest. Point. You could literally blaze a path through the forest. Yeah. And or at least find like, where you, the road should go. Like mm-hmm. look from above and get a yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. there are so many creative Scouting, ways and logistical ways for them to use dragons. Because I'm I'm imagining sort of like hype because one thing we definitely get, and I can't remember if this is just in the show or if this also appears in Fire and Blood but it is specified that dragons do in fact travel faster than ravens. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about the spread of information, if you need to get a message from King's Landing to Winterfell and you want it to be secret and you want it to get there fast, what you do is you give the message to a dragon rider, have them fly way high up so no one can see them, land in Winterfell. By the time people figure out they're there, they've already delivered their message. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. I like it. So do we think Mushroom ever rode a dragon? I wonder. <laughs> oh, good question. I don't know. I feel like he'd have mentioned it if he had. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a really good point. I, I want, In my head canon, he had. If he I mean, was like he probably claimed he had sex of... with a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> he rode, yeah, he rode. He a rode a dragon. You know <laughs> to be I mean. fair, he could have said that he rode a dragon and that simply wasn't one of the things in the testimony of Mushroom that they chose True. to like include the like, he, like, like they were as important to like them that is a really good point we're not getting the testimony of mushroom we are getting the excerpts mm-hmm. from the testimony of mushroom that gildane decided to include that's actually a really important thing to remember well for like purposes yeah. of this entire discussion yeah. which if gildane had any instruction or awareness of what targaryens would want maybe he would leave that out because it downplays the power of the targaryens oh. but if i wrote a dragon it would be like a period like every <laughs> sentence i wrote it would be like and then Renera went to court and I wrote a dragon at one time. And then Damon said, da, 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 and I wrote a dragon at one time. <laughs> over and over cool. again, I would make sure everyone knew. <laughs> he was like that. So you'd write down all the dragons. Like, I wrote on Caraxes. I wrote on Cyrax. I wrote on, you'd name them, each one. Oh yeah, he'd name them. He'd name them. <laughs> so speaking of theories about mushroom, let's talk about the theory about mushroom. <laughs> Specifically, one of the best reasons to question the accounts of mushroom or the identity of mushroom begins with the fact that, like we just said, it, he didn't write it. You already have this degree of separation, which enables the potential that, well, this person that actually wrote it down was inserting their own ideas here and there on purpose or by accident or entirely. That is perhaps the theory can go that far. And the fact that we already discussed that this author isn't even named. So as you say, that's not too unusual, but it certainly doesn't remove any mystery. <laughs> Take it away. So I am going to make medievalists roll in their graves by comparing Mushroom to Marjorie Kemp, because this is how I roll. (laughs) So Marjorie Kemp was a woman who lived a fairly unremarkable middle-class life in King's Lynn, which is a mid-sized city in England in the early 15th century. Until, at least, after giving birth to her 14th child. And please let us Wait, this is unremarkable? (laughs) Uh, For that period, yes. Unfortunately, it is quite unremarkable. Um, (laughs) Okay, I'm shuddering. Marjorie had a vision of the Virgin Mary partly due to postpartum depression and rebranded herself as a mystic. 
Her life thereafter is actually very remarkable. And the only reason that we know about it is that she hired a scribe to write it down many, many years later because she herself was illiterate. She never learned how to read. But she was nonetheless going around. She went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. She went all over Europe. She went to Santiago de Compostela. She traveled on her own, which is unheard of for a woman of her status. But she did it. She did it because she was like, you know, God told me to do it. And everyone around her just said, okay, I guess God God told you to do that. So go ahead. Good luck. Except for the ones who said she was a heretic and tried to burn her at the stake, which is a whole separate thing. But the resulting manuscript that she produced after several tries, she actually mentions that she tried to get it written down once, but the scribe did a really bad job. I'm not sure how she figured that out, but the scribe did a poor job. So she fired him and found a new one. But the resulting manuscript was, after several centuries, printed and published as the Book of Marjorie Kemp and is generally regarded as the first autobiography written in English. I have taught it three times, and all three times I had at least one student ask me if she ingested magic mushrooms. (laughs) Uh, So far as I know, the answer is no. But they always ask, and I always have to say, no, I'm pretty sure she did not ingest magic mushrooms. (laughs) Now, one of my favorite essays on Marjorie Kemp actually reads her work as a kind of fan fiction, and I encourage everyone to read it. It's a wonderful essay written by Anna Wilson, and we can link it in the show notes. I'll put it in the live stream chat for y'all as well. Mm -hmm. Lovely. But on the flip side, we have a historical chronicle from the late 15th century that has generally been referred to by the name of the monastery where it was found when this, when some historians stumbled on it in the 18th century and decided it might be useful for the current flame war over whether Richard III was a villain or just a nice man. This flame war has been happening for a really long time. It was happening in the 18th century. It is still going on, much like the Shakespeare authorship circus that I refuse to dignify by calling it a controversy. Yeah. <laughs> but again, outside the scope of today, <laughs> the so-called second continuation of the Crowland and Chronicle, which is a great name, was almost certainly written by a member of Edward IV's Privy Council, which is kind of the equivalent of the small council of Westeros. Mm. It provides an intimate view of the death of King Edward and the subsequent attempts to seize power from his teenage son that ultimately led to Edward's younger brother, Richard III, usurping the throne. The author claims to have written the entire history over a period of several weeks in the year 1485, and it was quietly incorporated into the official chronicle of Crowland Abbey. But we do not actually know who wrote it. The top candidate is Bishop John Russell, who was an educated man. He may or may not have also been the scribe in addition to the author. But this particular history includes multiple incidents, interpretations, and elements that do not appear in any other contemporary sources, including my personal favorite, which is the story of the future Richard III's wife, Lady Anne Neville, being hidden in a London cookshop by her brother-in-law, George of Clarence, presumably so Richard could not find her and marry her. It's a great story. Mm. I love it, but it has no other corroboration anywhere else. Mm, Wow. But so many of the other things in the Crowland Chronicle do seem to be accurate. So it may well have happened in one form or another, Hmm. which is all to say that Mushroom might not have existed at all and that the testimony of Mushroom as a text might have been written by someone or someones under a pseudonym. Right on. Okay, Sean, I see you have a couple questions here. Let's let's get to those. This is there's a lot here. Well, let's let's see if we can break some of that down. Dig in. I've forgotten more questions than I have, but but <laughs> one thing I wanted to bring up is isn't Socrates? There's some question as to whether he was even a real person, right? It could just be that his stories and teachings 
were a story that became the writings of Plato or Aristotle or whatever, and that his story actually is hard to prove. I thought that, that was, he a, was fringe. Real. I thought he that never... was a fringe theory because he's a testament of him being in certain battles. Even. Okay, okay. Yeah. Maybe it is fringe, but but it's still a long idea of something that's right hard now, for us to too. know the truth There's of, right? Actually that, so I think this is a kind of sort of game of telephone version of an actual theory that's out there. Oh. This isn't so much a theory as this weird medieval thing that happened. Supposedly, in the medieval period, there were loads of copies of a text that supposedly was Aristotle's advice to Alexander the Great. It was called the Secreta Secretorum or the Secret of Secrets. We do not know that it was actually really written by Aristotle or really written to Alexander the Great. But it was basically just a collection of advice for rulers. It was the ori- one of the original kind of mirrors for princes. And it probably had stuff that was from Aristotle, probably had stuff that was from Socrates, from Cicero, from Plato, like all of this stuff kind of muddled together. But whoever put it together decided that they would get more authority by claiming the entire thing was written by Aristotle. Makes sense, yeah. That so does. That would boost it. We see similar things happening in other texts. Like, for instance, I'm editing a book right now that talks a lot about Geoffrey of Monmouth. Geoffrey of Monmouth was a 12th century historian writing in England. He is one of the earliest sources we have for King Arthur. But the fact is, he claims to be basing his text on an old British book. No title, no author, (laughs) no further information. Just an old British book. (laughs) So... Who knows? Was it real? Was Jeffrey making it all up? Was he getting it from oral sources? Like, we have no idea where he was getting his information. (laughs) One thing when you're trying to figure out where these historical texts come from is you look for corroboration. Someone said something, well, it's anywhere else say the same thing. Or is it just them? And I'm thinking for Mushroom, there's got to be some pieces of that, right? There's some things that we kind of know were true, but other things only he said. There's a lot of reasons to believe that it might have been someone else writing it or some collection of writings. And so that makes me wonder, who might have done that? Is there is there a candidate for who we think Mushroom might have been or who the person who collected, if it was like multiple different people at different time periods, all getting lumped into this Mushroom character, who would have done that lumping? Is there someone that we suspect or have a candidate to have been that person or the original whatever, you know? I know who I would like it to be. I want it to be Lara Strong. Uh-huh. I, I like. <laughs> I would love it oh. if at least some portion of it was like Laris just writing down stuff. Because we know he knew a whole lot. <laughs> he knew yeah. tons yeah, no. of, and he had yeah. to have been keeping track of his information somehow. Yeah, you don't just keep all of that in your head. The way to explain some of this knowledge would be listening through the walls rather than being mm-hmm. in the room. As well, so that yeah. that is the that's another reason why he would fit. Whether there's there's no direct evidence, as you say, that's what you wanted. That's mm-hmm. why you say that's what you want it to be because we can't. It's all speculation, yeah. but I like I but would love fits. it if it were that. Yeah. Or in the alternative, maybe it was Otto Hightower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, mm-hmm. secret freak Otto, at least in part, like Otto Hightower writing his burn book for <laughs> which, which I guess brings up another question: What are the motivations to conceal the author in the first? I think maybe mm-hmm. Sean was going to yeah, ask yeah, that. Sean asked, yeah, is there yeah. a discernible agenda? Oh yeah, so, what's yeah, the agenda like, if, we can yeah. Like if there is there say, an anti Rhaenyra agenda in in Mushroom's t- words, you need mm-hmm. to have someone who could possibly have gotten this information. You need to have someone who or is willing to make motivation it up. 
to write yeah. this information down and someone who would want to be secret or someone else who would have wanted them to be kept secret or whatever. So I, I and I, Lars seems like he could fit all those. Otto maybe could fit all those. I like one take here, by the way, from Brandilyn Price in the chat. I thought making him a dwarf was a sort of play on the small folk being behind it. The idea that it was a small folk who, who, who did this oh, was interesting. I like that even Yeah, better. I think that's Actually, a very fun idea. Fit- things we know in terms of real world examples, given how much time this account covers, given how many different contradictory details are in there, it may also have just been pulled together over time. It may well have been like a bunch of different individual accounts that were then compiled into a single book and eventually sort of circulated as a single text. Mm-hmm. I, I thought a lot about that too, but it couldn't have been, I mean, for I mean, the Bible kind of fits that, except it was over hundreds of years. This couldn't have been over more than a decade or two, right? Because it was, Baylor was only like a generation later burning this book. So it had to have been put together in a relatively short period of time, right? But I would also say that we don't, what we see in Fire and Blood, what was taken, like anything in Fire and Blood could have been added, yes, decades later, not within that decade. Mm, That's true. Mm-hmm. Whatever Mushroom did write, what people later on write about what he wrote could be even more like added uh, yes. on. Or, we also, you know, meaningfully or not. Or we also don't have version control. Yeah. Like if someone is given a copy yeah. of Testimony of Mushroom after the era of Baylor's burning, it could be edited from the original and they wouldn't know. Yeah. It's the or only it could have been have. translated. That's yeah. the other thing. Mm-hmm. You could have like a Google Translate effect yeah. going oh, if it yeah. was printed, if it not printed, but if it was copied in Essos, maybe it was written in Valyrian, if it got copied back into the Westerosi Commentat. Like it's there are so many ways because because you're dealing with the pre-print era, so to speak, there are so many ways for that text to get altered and no one to have any idea that it has happened. Mm. I, I had one other thought. I'm not knowledgeable enough about the details to call this a theory even, but just an idea. I wonder if Mushroom could have been like the Dread Pirate Roberts. It could have been different people over time. Uh, the and Pirate it theoretically <laughs> could have been in two places at the same time. If it was like a role, if they're in some costume and makeup and are just a role and not one person, but huh. a role that's being played. Is that a possibility for this Mushroom character? And could that also explain how sometimes he knows things he shouldn't because He wasn't there. Well, maybe he was there if it was... Probably not the physical one because he's three feet tall and all that. It might be hard to Yeah, probably not physically. But but if we assume, like, because think about Varys, for instance. Think about Varys in the original series. He is also extremely non-threatening, at least in terms of physical presence. But he knows everything, not because of, not necessarily because of things he himself overhears, but because he has this enormous network of spies. One of the things, the other thing you could think about in terms of Mushroom is he's not necessarily the person who is witnessing all of these things, but he is the person who is gathering all of this information. Mm, okay, yeah. Oh, when you're, as you mentioned earlier, like hearing things through the walls, mm-hmm. he might get stories from the Kingsguard, like yeah. Kingsguard sure. standing, they hear something. And they might not even tell Mushroom. They just might talk to each other about it. But Mushroom mm-hmm. overhears it. They underplan. They don't even notice Still he's standing though, there. He's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I still want to, I'm holding out for the potential of twin dwarves. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. More they twins. The same and when they stand on one st- on shoulders, they can pretend, when I put on a trench coat. <laughs> they can pretend that they're a real yeah. uh, full-size person. <laughs> oh my God. But yeah, in terms of kind of real world examples for this there, I know there's, the, I keep coming back to Richard III, but it's a great example because there's so much kind of mess around it and so much ambiguity. So there's another account. This is written by an Italian. It's written in Latin. It's addressed to a bishop who lives in Paris. And it's incredibly important because he was, this guy was physically, he was physically present in London at the time when this usurpation took place. So he could have been present for any number of the things that actually happened, but he doesn't have any close connections to the royal family. So a lot of what he's reporting may actually have been rumors rather than actual events. Mm. He also admits at several points that his English is not very good, which is not surprising for an Italian cleric who was writing in Latin, (laughs) who would mostly have been either speaking in Latin or speaking in Italian. Again, with the testimony of Mushroom, what we might be dealing with is a text that was sort of pulled together from a bunch of different sources It could even have been sort of mushroom writing down things he heard and eventually deciding at the end of his life, oh, I think I'll just sort of pull all this stuff together. It may not even have been stuff that he personally knew about. It was just stuff that he heard. Hmm. I want to point out, just because it's a rumor, it doesn't mean it's not true. (laughs) (laughs) Just because it's a rumor doesn't mean it's not true. That's true. true. So again, though, I guess there's certain ones where we can look and say, okay, this, this makes sense as a why it would be said to weaken the lineage of Rhaenyra or Damon or that or the blacks in general. What what are some of the maybe specific things that would tie this to maybe Otto or Laris? If you can think of any uh, angles to it, or even if you have specific examples, that would be good. Or to troubleshoot the theory, anything that would remove the possibility of it being Laris or Otto. Sure. Well, I mean, obviously the big thing that the big point against either Laris or Otto Hightower is that they die before the narrative ends. Mm. Um, (laughs) That's true. So that supports my Dread Pirate Roberts theory. (laughs) Exactly. The Dread Pirate Roberts theory is there and also the just the general multiple authors theory that maybe they were responsible for some of it, but not all of it. Yeah, because as we said, Mushroom not only outlives pretty much everyone, he outlives them by a long time. Like he outlives- He does. He he, he lives beyond the reign of Baylor even, which is Mm -hmm. like, yeah, like 40 years after the dance or 30 years after the dance. Well, the reign of Baylor begins 30 years after the dance and ends 40 years after the dance. Yeah, so really it's it's hard to imagine, like even if one person did live that long, which they could have, it's absolutely possible for someone to live that long. But- it's also just as possible that he was, that whoever it was that compiled all of these things together, whether or not it was Mushroom the person, might have just been collecting all of these different pieces of information in, like, there were what are called commonplace books in this period. And what a commonplace book was, was essentially people would find bits of texts that they found compelling in ver- for various reasons, whether it was for religious reasons, moral reasons, what have you. And they would just write them down in excerpt form Mm. in these books. And so you'll find these books that have poems and snippets of chronicles and bits of Cicero and just Mm. no real rhyme or reason for why all these texts are put together. But 
someone found them interesting. Someone put them in a category that we can't discern. <laughs> yeah. It was like a journal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got mm-hmm. books like that. Yeah, just stuff you find interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me correct myself real quick. We don't know that Mushroom lived through the reign of Baylor. We know he outlived Aegon III, who died only four years before the reign of Baylor began. So he probably was at least alive during the reign of Baylor. He may not have made it all the way through. Maybe hearing that his book was burned is what he he gave, he died after he's like oh, oh my heart my book it's been burned all the copies except for one yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so speaking of that you you mentioned that one possibility for the book surviving is that yeah there were copies that went overseas that mm-hmm. and then they just made their way back like Baylor couldn't have gotten his hands on those and he probably wouldn't have gone into that much effort to find them you know uh, maybe some of the others like. Uh, the Jade Compendium or something like that. He might have cared more about that, but I'm guessing Mushroom wasn't his highest priority, but maybe it was. Like we said, if it was about protecting certain family images, maybe yeah, maybe he did care. Maybe he was really embarrassed by his grandmother <laughs> <laughs> or his grandparents or any of those, those who came yeah. before him. He certainly was a different sort. Let's see. I guess we can take our our break here. We've got a few questions. Let's take these questions and say hello to our sponsor. Then we'll get back with the little more specific takes from the testimony of Mushroom, as well as what we'll have saved for the end, which is his best funniest moments, his quips. And we'll have some good fun with that. The wit and wisdom of Mushroom. Yes, exactly. (laughs) A couple from uh, J.S. Holgerson. Do not forget the Irish wristwatch. Okay, yeah, it has been a little while since we've done the Irish wristwatch. Are you Kavita prepared that for this, last time. Can you? Oh, I'll give it a try. Okay. okay. You have to say it three times in a row? 13 three times, times in a row? Times. How many 300 times? times. No. <laughs> as fast as you can. All right, let's see. Hmm. Irish wristwatch. Irish wristwatch. Irish wristwatch. Hey. Ooh, pretty Very good. good. Yeah, it's Very not good. theater training. Better, <laughs> better than me. Better let's than hear you do it, Sean. Come on. Irish Wrist watch, Irish wrist watch, Irish wrist watch, Irish wrist watch. It's like I cheated that first time going too slow. Yeah. Fourth time. Okay, good. Okay, wait, no, actually, all full round is these, you too. Irish wrist watch, Irish wrist watch, Irish wrist watch. Okay. Irish. This has been practicing. Irish wrist watch, Irish wrist watch, Irish wrist watch. Hey, that's good. I said it. Okay. I said it with great enunciation, I think. Okay, good, good. Thank you for that. We're too good to get the proper humor out of this. We failed by getting it right. Maester Yota says Who is your favorite Plantagenet king, Dr. Vita? Oh, tough call. Oh, my goodness. They're all like, it depends on who is my favorite. Like, if you want to know who my favorite train wreck Plantagenet king is or who my favorite, like, I think they were actually okay Plantagenet king is. <laughs> yeah, it's a loaded question. Like, who's the most interesting? It is a loaded question. Who's, like, the most, like... Likeable? You'd like the most, yeah, like, the most I mean, admirable. one of my favorites to read about, my fa- probably one of my favorites to read about is Edward IV because he wa- he had so much potential and it all just went out the window. (laughs) He started off and he was all like, he was doing really, really well. And then he had the dubious distinction of being the only English monarch to get kicked out of his kingdom and then come back and then rule for another 15 or not 15 years, 13 years, only to die of presumably some combination of alcoholism and just who knows what? Hardly. Um, but he, the, yeah, he's the Robert Baratheon kind of <laughs> king, except that he was reasonably good administratively, at least up to a point. 
And he gets extra points for being a, a patron of William Caxton, the first the first guy to open a printing press in England. Oh, nice. But yeah, he's probably one of my favorites to read about just because his life is stranger than fiction. Mm. Like everything that happens to him is completely unbelievable. You do not like you look at that, you're like, what why? How are you real? But he was, and it's very bizarre. Mm. And I feel like he got the short shrift from Shakespeare because Shakespeare wanted to write about his younger brother. Mm-hmm. Stupid Minotaur says, have you seen the invisible mushroom theory that Mushroom is in the show, but he's overlooked? Just well, my camera. theory was that he's just off camera. Okay. He's just too short. You can't yes. quite see him. But uh, He's just always off camera. Yeah. Which, and at the very, very end, they're going to turn around and it will be, it was me the whole time. <laughs> it is fitting given that he's he is kind of overlooked and or maybe didn't exist. So I kind of like that they left it open. He could be just below the, the lower end of what the camera's picking up or behind a door listening. Oh, in. Or behind the <laughs> table or behind the behind Chris. He's always right behind Kristen Cole. <laughs> you just can't. <laughs> the cape, the cape is really flowing. Kristen Cole is the twin. Is Mushroom's twin. It's mm-hmm. Mushroom's the lower oh, half of Kristen Cole. <laughs> yeah, it's like that movie <laughs> Twins. Danny DeVito and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I do remember that movie. <laughs> it's one of those. And we got a, a pair of comments here from Dornish Dame and Julie A. Who said, from first Dornish Dame, certainly the Targaryens would have had a lot of servants who might not be literate could have had their stories transcribed and servants hear a lot. And then Julie A. agreed and said that this does seem like the gossip of domestic staff and multiple people reporting and transcribing. So, which all could mean that Mushroom did exist. Mushroom is But that it was also, like, well, I mean, it could be both. It could be, yes, there was no Mushroom and Mushroom is just the staff. Or it could be that Mushroom was one of many people who were serving, like, because that is what Mushroom was. He was effectively a servant within there. Right. Maybe he just gossiped with all the others and got all this info and then claimed he was the source Mm -hmm. for it. Yeah. Or again, again, not to like bring up the Laurie Strong thing, like even if Mushroom was real, there could be that Mushroom reported to Laurie's and Laurie's compiled a bunch of Mushroom's thoughts and a bunch of it like... Or Laurie's used him as a cat spy. He's like, this He's like, there's a way to foist it on someone else. They're not all mutually exclusive, is my point. Yes. The more I think about it, I think it probably is a collection of multiple people's stories, including Mushrooms. And whoever put the collection together, which also might have been multiple people, put it all under Mushrooms' name because he's someone that wouldn't be gone after, mm-hmm. right? That people like, you know, they wouldn't think he had some sinister intent. He's someone that people would believe could have been present, would have this knowledge, etc. He's, he's a, I don't know, scapegoat's quite the right word, but yeah. a good cover, yeah. uh, you know. A cover story. Yeah. Like, Horace doesn't want to get his spies caught, so he's not going to use their names. He doesn't want to get the staff in trouble. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to implicate certain people or limit his ability to use his spies. Oh, yeah, yeah, Mushroom did it. Yeah, this is all. And since some were Mushroom, makes it easier to believe. Since Mushroom would have been present for these things, it's on and on. Yeah, I'm getting more and more certain. I like when it. I do read Fire and Blood. We plan on doing a, a read of be reread for you guys yeah. in August. Yeah. For me. And it's definitely going to be like on the top of my brain as I go through. Yeah, Sean's going to be on about. Mushroom Watch. <laughs> yeah, I love Mushroom yeah. on my oh, brain. Oh, please do be on Mushroom <laughs> yes. Watch because I like my most recent reread of Fire and Blood, which was right before House of the Dragon came out because I was kind of curious to see what they were doing. My most recent reread, I just kept looking for references to Mushroom that were not made by Mushroom himself and I did not find any. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I so yeah. never, uh, yeah, never uh, used to see anyone who was like, and then and then mushroom was observed to do that. Yeah, it was always yeah, mushrooms and then was mushroom reported did this, to do or, this. Like mushroom did yeah. that. He did this, and that it, it would make sense if Eustace had mentioned mushroom. It would also make sense that he didn't. And of course, Eustace couldn't refer to the testimony of mushroom because the testimony of mushroom was written was not well written later, later than Eustace's account. And Eustace would have been and probably dead again, by the time he came out. Eustace might have mentioned mushroom in a section of the text that we don't get. Um, the fact that yeah. we are getting excerpts that. from both Gildane and from both Eustace and mushroom through Gildane means that there are entire sections of the text that we cannot see. Yes. I wonder how George would react to being that, having that question put to him. Is, did mush, is there a chance mushroom wasn't a real person? Yeah, I think I, I really want someone to ask I him will that tell question. you that I will absolutely at the next Q&A ask him that question, but it has to be <laughs> phrased exactly right. We'll figure out a good yeah. phrase. It has to be yeah. the perfect phrasing because he'll, you, you, yeah, you know, you've listened to many Q&As before. Oh, yeah. he, he's, he's real wily with it. Yeah, uh, it was yeah. great. I mean, I, 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 it's good for him. But like, yeah, we well, definitely got to be real clear with what we're asking. <laughs> I hope it's a left field enough question. He's like, what? What? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Then you Why? Would, Why are you thinking Then that? that would pretty much kill the idea. Then we would at least know. Yes, yeah, it would. Yeah, 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 it just, would. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes he might be like, what? Why? But then he might still do the thing where he strokes his chin. And he's, yeah, like, he's like, really? He might be like, I interesting. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sometimes it gets him, it gets him percolating, I think, some, some Q&A questions, yeah. actually. Well, I would be very proud if if this man, if, if somehow you uh, this collective <laughs> managed to inspire George to decide mushroom wasn't real. <laughs> <laughs> if you got some chin strokes out of it, you might be like, yeah. oh, I'd be very proud. It. I want to put that on my resume somewhere. <laughs> Made George R. Martin. I got George R. R. Martin to stroke his chin. <laughs> 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 All right. With that, let's. You know, oh, oh, go yeah. ahead. I wanted to say real quick. We we have a friend who made this very extensive, thorough timeline of the. Oh yeah, yeah. The, timeline of, of Game of Thrones. That timeline, Alex, <laughs> and he, he brought it to Ice and Fire, kind of like on. It's like I don't know, ten or fifteen feet long. You know, like it's like three feet by twenty feet or something. Mm-hmm. But anyway. I want to get him to make a timeline of mushrooms. We can like line up all the times he was supposedly present for all the people who would have referenced him. If we can suss something out from a, a visual extended timeline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alex, amazing. if you're out there listening. <laughs> oh, also, I should give a shout out. One of our Twitter followers, Lana Del Rainera, recommended I add a, a Bluforia Urbamay tea to my usual mix of blueberry bang and protein naked drink and such. So I just wanted to let them know I did it and it's good. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I tried to drink Herba Mate as as a coffee substitute for a while, but it's just not strong enough. (laughs) But it is healthier, I think. Well... Maybe. You know. I I'm I just finished my third coffee earlier. So <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm I'm working on one too. I usually make it at home, but I had to drop someone at the airport. So I, you know For me it's pure sugar. This is not coffee at all. It's just it's just basically my morning milkshake that I've got. <laughs> um, That's a great pure sugar, is there no chocolate in it? There's chocolate, but I mean it's okay, okay. That's there you the go. But yeah. <laughs> I had mocha yesterday. So I decided I would do regular coffee today. A great segue to our sponsor, Smile Brilliant. <laughs> It goes to show how much we need to take care of our teeth when we're imbibing 30 plus ounce drinks with that stain your teeth with coffee and mocha or do damage to them with all the sugar. I mean, let's be honest. It's great to have a sponsor that you don't have to shop at Smile Brilliant. I recommend them heavily, but we all need to buy stuff for our teeth. So you may as well save money when doing it. You may as well buy it from people that specialize in it. And you may as well do it with someone that's sponsoring, you know, us in the community. Yeah, you help so, us. <laughs> yeah, so 
Everybody wins. A rising tide lifts all boats. So smilebrilliant.com, you get 20% off with code Westeros. You might even save more. Sometimes they have site-wide sales. Our, our code will, will add to that. And they have a full line of products, whether it's the advanced stuff like teeth whitening, pretty important when you drink as much coffee as I do, or just regular day-to-day care, which pretty important when you drink as much coffee as I do and (laughs) with as much chocolate as I put in it or things in between like managing, grinding your teeth or more infrequent use items rather than day-to-day stuff. So they have the whole suite, everything you might need. Get it all at one place, all at once. Take care of it together rather than here and there. Just knock it off the list. 20% off at smilebrand.com using the code Westeros. I can tell a difference in Aziz's teeth, certainly. Uh, yeah, they already. are absolutely whiter, yeah. for sure. I'm happy. They were <laughs> ugly before. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they were they're, they're, they're fine, but they, I can't tell the difference. I will admit, which is not to say I ever thought Aziz didn't have white teeth, but I'm like, oh, they are a little whiter. <laughs> right on, yeah. It's... Anyway, let's move on to the actual testimony of Mushroom. Ooh. Here's a good example of one particular passage from it that will kick off this next set of discussions. It was only a few moons later that Damon was exiled. As for the reason, our sources differ greatly. Some, such as Runesitter and Munkin, suggest that King Viserys and King Damon quarreled, for brotherly love rarely stands in the way of disagreements. That is why Damon left. Others say that it was Allison, at Serato's prompting possibly, who convinced Viserys that Damon must leave. But to speak more fully on the matter, Septon Eustace's The Reign of King Viserys, first of his name, and The Dance of Dragons that came after was written by the Septon after the war came to its end. Though dry and ponderous in his writings, Eustace was clearly the confidant of the Targaryens and speaks accurately of many things. Mushrooms, the testimony of Mushroom, is another matter, however. (laughs) So the first part is a good example where we have a lot of sources weighing in, and that's just interesting altogether. When, When we have something that's corroborated by a bunch of different sources, that by itself makes it really interesting. Mushroom was not a confidant so much as he was someone whom they didn't mind talking around. Like he just heard things, supposedly. And also perhaps someone who embellished quite a bit. But this is a why not both. Something we're gonna, we've been running into a lot already and we're going to continue to run into where it could be a made up. It could be supplementary. Like we hear two things that don't actually contradict each other, but neither corroborates the other. Both could be true. And so we have a lot of why not both examples coming up here. Mushroom has access that the Septons and Maesters don't necessarily have but he also has reasons to embellish because he's an entertainer. He's a court fool. Like his job, his attitude towards life is to entertain and make people laugh. But wouldn't it also be true, Kavita, that historical records have arguably even more pressures to be dishonest or to protect deeper, darker secrets? Something that, like, will this entertain is, I think, a lot less corrupt than... Who is this going to harm? Or am I going to die if I write this? <laughs> mm-hmm. And again, it's it's one of those where could be both. Yeah. Because history, depending on the kind of historical account you're reading, it was also intended for entertainment. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, Shakespeare claims that a number of historical monarchs were sleeping around when they may or may not have actually been doing that. And that was in a stage play, which was obviously not academic history, but the pervasiveness of the stories that come out of Shakespeare's history plays, you, you can't deny that. 
People thought Richard III was a hunchback for many, many years before it was actually proven he had scoliosis. Oh, wow. So that's, so which is, you can see where that came from. It was an exaggeration yeah. of the truth, an embellishment rather mm-hmm. than strict accuracy. Or even a misunderstanding. Okay. Yeah. yeah maybe, maybe yeah. an honest misunderstanding. Except that in, that all the historians said, oh, he's a hunchback and automatically that makes him evil. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. So. Yeah. That part, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. The old tropes. They have tropes mixing too, which is part of what you're saying. Like even history has tropes, which is part of where you're coming when you say, well, it's it's meant to entertain or it's meant to be entertaining, which that's something that really resonates with me because I love reading history. I do find it entertaining. So that's like, at that point, just is very straightforward in, in a lot of ways. Basically, 16th century historians use literary tropes was my PhD thesis. <laughs> wow. In a nutshell. Yeah. So you know this one particularly well. It's like they use literary tropes to talk about women because they didn't know how to talk about women. Like one of the most common ones is perhaps the evil stepmother trope, which mm-hmm. we see that's like, that one's super old. And it, it George uses it. I mean, Alicent is the evil stepmother in a lot of ways in Fire and Blood, less so in House of the Dragon because she's made younger. She's not that evil, maybe. And much younger, so she doesn't really fulfill the trope in that regard either. Again, I haven't read Fire and Blood, but just trying to clarify or be fair about the state of things, is George using that trope or is Mushroom? And Eustace he's, using I, I that think he's trope. having them, his characters do it, but other Yeah, yeah miles are it's the, the layer, it's it, talking about Fire and Blood is complicated because on the one hand, if you're talking about it in the out-of-universe sense, George is the author, he's the only author, and what he's doing within the universe is trying to create this multivocal text, which is actually very difficult to do. And I and that one of the reasons why I really love Fire and Blood, despite the many, many, many frustrations I have with it, is the fact that he's trying to do this. Yeah. And this is fun for yeah, me as you personally. Know. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> It's like, this is fun for me. Part of of why I wanted to bring that up is because it does, I feel George has a lot of influence on House of the Dragon, the show. Mm -hmm. And Allison isn't being presented as an evil stepmother there. And I I understand right, Fire and Blood is coming from multiple different perspectives. Again, not that there isn't this evil stepmother trope, but there isn't part of what's going on here. But I do feel it's more the historians in Martin's world, just like historians in a real world using the evil stepmother trope. Yes. And the other thing to keep in mind is that the age difference between Alicent and Rhaenyra, even in Fire and Blood, is not that big. It's like a nine-year age difference. That's the difference between an elementary schooler and a college student. Mm-hmm. So yes, evil stepmother, but also they are still kind of peers in a just on the very, very edge of being peers. Yeah. So like the different, the age difference between Rainier and Alicent is, for instance, the same age difference between me and my brother. We're eight years apart. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, probably, yes, Rainier was a child and Alicent was much older and mature and sort of living the life of an adult. And so her marrying Viserys under those circumstances would have been less obviously egregious than what happens on the show where she's his daughter's friend mm-hmm. and the two of them are contemporaries and it's implied that they're about the same age. Yeah. So that's just a big, so that's just a flat out change in some way, yeah. Sean. So that's something to keep in mind is they, the age change was part and the making them friends is, Completely not in Fireball. That's not just a different interpretation. That's just a flat-out change. Yeah. yeah. Although some of these other things do fall in that category. One of the interesting things with Fire and Blood, because, again, we're getting sort of snippets of Eustace and Broom kind of strung together by Gildane's commentary, we don't actually know how 
long, how the relationship between Rhaenyra and Alicent went from what was at the beginning supposedly like okay to just absolute disaster. We know that it happened over a period of several years. We also know that there were these long periods of time where nothing really happened, or at least there was no like obvious tension between them. So it's also entirely possible, much like what happens during a lot of medieval civil wars, that there was violence was kind of a punctuation, but mostly it was these long periods of either peace or just people being on good behavior. Mm, Okay, right on. Let's talk about some of his best slash worst slash biggest claims. Some of these are really wild. Some of these are really funny. Some of these are possible. Some of these are possible in the book and not so much the show, but we'll keep that in mind as we go through them individually. All right, let's start. Sean, some of these are going to be really wild to you, I think, particularly. (laughs) Alicent and Viserys started sleeping together before Emma's death. So having only seen the show, Sean, you're probably like, what? That doesn't seem possible at all. Obviously, things are different in the, in the show. In the book, she's nine years older. You don't necessarily have this Love, relationship between yeah. Viserys and Emma that runs yeah. really deep. That isn't necessarily as implied or even stated at all. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot more believable, even if it is not necessarily believable. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's also an indication that maybe someone who wants to discredit Basaris or Alicent or whoever might have both. started this rumor yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that discredits both of yeah, them, really. Yeah, it really speaks to, I mean, if we're talking about Mushroom's agenda and who, who he's anti and who he's pro, well, that is, this doesn't make Alicent or Viserys look good. Yeah. So this seems like something that Otto would not have. It does. It doesn't yeah. seem like Otto would have yeah. unless he's do Unless he's throwing some red herrings in there to throw off the scent. Yeah. You know, I, I mean... Or... Which, Unless this is something that was added much, much later. Yeah, oh, yeah. Good point. True. Yeah. Another yeah, good point. True. Okay, yeah. yeah. Also, Mushroom suggested Alicent performed a services for the old king, which is... Mm-hmm. Yeah, not likely. We needn't <laughs> dwell on that one. Yeah, it doesn't... <laughs> Alicent hoped that Rhaenyra would die in childbirth. That's when Visenya was born. So that... Mushroom was not there for that. Mushroom was there for Visenya's birth. Though, and he yeah. claims to have carried the deceased infant to the yard for burning, which is implies a weird, very. Why would Rhaenyra uh, have him mm. do that? Like it seems so very un undignified. Undig- dignified is the right word. Like the fool carries your tragically de- dead daughter. No. That doesn't seem right. Yeah, it seems odd. Mm-hmm. It's a complete opposite of performing services for Jaharis, but also very not believable. But it is perhaps believable that Allison said that line, but Mushroom yeah. not being there really throws that into question. <laughs> like you, directly quoting someone that when you were at a, not in their location is already kind of a tough sell. <laughs> I wonder if it does line up with the idea that it's a story of a small folk or a servant Ooh. that just got lumped into Mushroom. You know, all these different stories are all Mushroom stories. And mm-hmm. That's a good point. It fits in that bucket very well, Sean. You're right. Mm-hmm. That one. You're absolutely right. Because there could have been any number of servants around who heard Allison say, maybe the mayhap, what is, what's the actual line is, mayhaps the horror will die in childbed or something like Something, something awful like, like that. that yeah. Yeah. Which, <laughs> at that point, I mean, honestly, given the state of their relationship at that point, it is a believable thing yeah. Yeah. for her to have said under those circumstances. Definitely. Yeah, and I because yeah, again, remember that Allison, I mean, I, I have to imagine that what we saw in the show with Allison being so just disgusted and, and horrified by Rhaenyra's willful flouting of decency. Like, yeah, she 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 did think of her as, in those terms. Yeah, she did think of her yeah. like that. Yeah, you're totally right. Oh, she abs... I mean, I'm... And without that kind of 
closeness that the show implied as uh, having been between Rhaenyra and Alicent beforehand, not having that necessarily, and imagining Alicent as sort of this almost older sister figure, you can kind of see how like she watched this little girl grow up into someone that she completely disapproved of. Mm. Yeah. Yes, yes, that is very true. Yeah, completely disapproved of. I mean, you see that, yeah. that is in the show, that is carried over as well. It's the, some of the details are different, but it's the same bottom line. Some related ones here. He's, Mushroom claims that Damon taught Rhaenyra how to seduce Cole, which, you know, if you go by the show version, he didn't teach her how to seduce Cole so much as he just taught her some things about seduction, which the, she immediately turned mm -hmm. to use on Kristen Cole. He also says that this story became known because of him at the time, not in the testimony of Mushroom, but at the time, he's the part of the reason that this rumor spread or that this truth, according to him, spread. He also claims that Cole turned down Rhaenyra despite all this because that he's this super pious, like chivalrous, would never... Incel. Yeah, incel. <laughs> would never do that sort of thing, so before... which is a pretty interesting claim for a Mushroom who was like, Everything is sexual, you know. Before you take it away from me, I'd like to point out that if Mushroom says the story became known at the time because of him, well, in the show, the story became known because of Mazaria and her small folk. Yeah. Her, her so mm -hmm. is Mazaria a candidate for one of the people who, I, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Laurie Strong, Otto Hightower. If Mazaria wrote Mushroom's testimony, wow. that'd be amazing. Well, then we got our, we throw her in the writer too. Sure. <laughs> See there, we have our we have our female historians. Yes. Here we go. Oh. It's Masaria. Hey. <laughs> oh, that I, she represents I, the small folk better than the others too. She like. does well, and also one of the things that I loved that they did on the show was they were showing all, like the lingering camera angles and like all of those shots of people scurrying around in the background, mm -hmm. passing information around. I loved that. That. that just that was catnip for me on the show, <laughs> and. I feel like that's where a lot of these stories come from. Like the story became known at the time because of Mushroom himself or because it was a racy story that everyone found fascinating. And so the rumors were spreading all over the place at the time. Mm -hmm. Another thing to connect you know, these two real quick, Sean, is we hear, this is portrayed on the show that Aegon has children with the underground fighting mm -hmm. pits. The book version of that is reported by Mushroom. Which the yeah. septons tend to download, like, ah, this is all gross. Ah, whatever. Let's move mm -hmm. on from that. You know? So it fits that as well, that it would be something that the small folk would have maybe heard about because this is Mazaria knew that too. <laughs> yeah, Mazaria and Mazaria wanted those pits <laughs> shut down. Yeah. So she would like, yeah, so she you could see why she would have included that. These things all fit together pretty well. But let's mm -hmm. let's bring it back to the original part of this, which started, which was the idea that the Cole and Rhaenyra and Damon stuff. What do you think? This story in particular feels like an outtake from the Decameron to me. All the tropes are there. You have the sort of scare quotes comic plot line of the naive and stupid young girl who is chasing the oblivious guy. <laughs> she turns to the rake for help, not I mean, either knowing or not knowing that he's a rake. She asks <laughs> no questions about why this is a bad idea go into excruciating detail about all the kinky things they got up to. And then only the guy she wants scorns her and she goes off and finds another guy and just goes off living her happy, uh, promiscuous life. There is actually a similar story about King Edward III and his long-term mistress, Alice Perrers, that made it into several later 15th century story collections that were inspired by the Decameron. So even though the Decameron itself isn't about historical figures, 
a lot of the spinoffs of the Decameron ended up starring historical figures. Like there's one about Edward IV as well and his supposed meeting with his wife where he threatens her with a dagger. And she says, no, I am too good to be your concubine, but not well-born enough to be your queen. Except he ultimately goes off and marries her. It's a very similar kind of story. And these are, these are stories that would circulate about monarchs because people wanted racy stories about monarchs. They wanted to know that monarchs were just like them. And they got up to the same nonsense that they did. Like a, a much later example, we also have, this is a 19th century example, but King Francis, the, King Francois I of France, who lived in the early 16th century, around the same time as Henry VIII, was cast as the villain in a 19th century play by Victor Hugo, the same Victor Hugo who wrote Les Miserables. Ah. Um, hmm. This play was called Le Roi s'amuse, or the king amuses himself, and he tries to seduce the daughter of his court jester. Hey, uh-huh. relevant. Only it all ends in death. Not the king's death, but everybody else. So as a note for opera fans, this actually became the basis for Giuseppe Verde's Rigoletto. And it's a beautiful, like, wonderful, wonderful songs, and the plot is awful. It is just about terrible men doing terrible things. <laughs> Which is just to say that something like this story about Damon and Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole, it just, it, it feels very sort of literary to me more than an actual historical account. Okay, right on. Yeah. The actual line from Mushroom about Kristen Cole is that he was, quote, as chaste and virtuous as an aged septa. So not much room for, not much wiggle room there unless he's just wrong or lying or something. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> No sense of humor is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he also <laughs> claims that the next thing that happened after being after she was turned down by Kristen Cole was that she turned to break bones, and he claims to have caught them abed, which is, what is he just allowed to walk in to her room whenever he I wants mean, to? Like, this I was like a little to, hard to figure out logistically. I don't know how Mushroom puts it, but I like to think that <laughs> Rhaenyra and Harwin were getting busy, you know, in some not discreet places, not necessarily in the bedchamber. Okay, I so just I, the, I just, you know, know, like technically, like he could have caught the them part. a bed, but not in their bedroom. In bed. Yeah, not in bed. <laughs> okay. Not, I just, just, just a thought on That's that. That's a good way to get around that problem. Yeah. yeah I'm just like picturing like, yeah, just like out and look, you know, a little, a little nook. Somewhere, I don't okay. know. <laughs> mushroom or, or servants. <laughs> yeah. And servants. Yeah, mushroom or someone serving as, you know, the role of mushroom or whatever, as we're supposing, could have been going through some secret chamber. Okay. Yeah. Or, I like, uh, and the servant idea works really well here, too, as you said, because they could just be having yeah. to deliver. It's time to change the bed. Yeah. Bring clothes. more coals into the fire, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. like do that. And like, whoops. Yeah. yeah sorry. I didn't know you were doing that in here. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> You're not supposed to be in this room, even, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So sp- staying in bed. Mushroom claims that Rainier liked watching Lenor and Carl in bed together. Hmm. This is one that you could just hear about as well. Like technically, Rainier could have remarked to someone that she watched them one time and enjoyed it, right? Yeah. Or she could have been joking. Yeah, it could yeah, have yeah. Been a joke yes, taken I sure out of context. Do enjoy like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. I sure enjoy watching my <laughs> husband with his dude. Yeah. yeah, like I. The servant missed the sarcasm, or someone missed the sarcasm mm-hmm. there. And there's a quote here as well mm-hmm. that adds some context. Yet Mushroom contradicts himself, for elsewhere in his testimony, he claims that the princess would leave her husband with his lover on such nights and seek her own solace in the arms of Harwin Strong. Classic why not both situation. Yeah. Sometimes you want chocolate, sometimes you want strawberry. <laughs> you know. Sometimes you want both. Yes, exactly. So yeah, this I mean that's where he stops. Like he has he doesn't say, okay, and also there was an orgy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he could have, but they 
Baylor had that line burned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like maybe that was one Gildane cut out, like Gildane excised <laughs> his own moralistic reasons. <laughs> he claims that Damon and Lena explored Valyria, which is woo cool. Now, the quote here is, we have abundant evidence the truth was less romantic. But it's another why not both. Like, there's evidence that they were our Bravos and Pentos, which we saw on the show. They were, you know, performing and getting feasted because they're fancy dragon riders. People are happy to give them gifts and try to win them over and stuff like that. But that doesn't mean they didn't also go elsewhere, right? They could, like, they were on dragons. We do not know where they went. Like, they could have gone to any number of places that are just not recorded. We're talking about a period of several years that are not necessarily accounted for. And there's no flight logs. Yeah. There's no, yeah, that there's no Westerosi FAA. So no one's (laughs) keeping track of where the dragons are. Yeah. So that's what it's open. So I I think we, we can't deny Mushroom here entirely. Based on the portrayal of Lena in House of the Dragon, I could totally see Lena really wanting to go mm. check out Valyria. Uh, yeah, personally. and she's got the dragon to do it. Yeah, like, Vagar could Vagar could make it that far. And frankly, Damon was like, even though he was portrayed as being kind of stuck in the library, he was reading about Valyria. Yeah, I could. Yeah. I really so. could see the two of them going on a like a day trip picnic, kind of you know, uh, day trip picnic yeah. to Valyria. <laughs> that's great it's combining a lot of childhood fun it's like it's a lava game you know where you can't touch the floor it's just actually true in Valyria (laughs) you really can't touch Uh, and unlike the situation with Aria and Valyrian like you're talking two adult capable dragon riders who have been bonded with their dragons for a long for a decent amount of time so I don't think it's impossible. Yeah, they turn around if it gets bad, it. unlike Valyrian. Yeah, exactly. They could turn around if it gets bad. Valeria's like, ah, turn around. I don't have a mask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah they, like she got choking, infected by yeah. fireworms. Uh-huh. Yeah, where Blair's like, what? I can handle this. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, to be fair, like it could be they traveled to Valyria and turned around before they even got like a quarter of a mile into the border. You know, like they could have gotten to the outskirts yeah. and not actually really... For these- Gone far. Yeah, they could have flown over it and said, wait, there's nowhere to land. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go find a beach. Yeah. <laughs> or they were on an island nearby that had a view of it. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of options. Or the dragons resisted like they did at the wall. Yeah. True. Ooh. That's also a possibility. Oh. Maybe the dragons were like, no, we're not going anywhere like, no, near that Balerion can go in there. But look what happened to Balerion when he went in there. Nine foot, yeah. nine foot wound. I don't want a nine foot wound. I don't want a one. Yeah, maybe Vagar's like, that's my brother's job. I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) He told me how bad it was. Like, yeah. He told me in Oh, I bet. Yeah, I bet Valerian told Vagar. Like, yeah, that dragons talk. No, I assume dragons talk. I'm actually so interested to think about the idea that like Valerian comes back from Valyria and communicates with any of the other dragons and tells them. Oh, where'd you get that scar, man? Yeah, no, that's sad. You can't go home anymore. Home is gone. It's as bad as they say. Yeah. They really set it on fire. Whoops. Speaking of curses and fire, Mushroom also claims that it was the sea snake who started the fire at Harrenhal as vengeance on the man who cuckolded his son. Uh, Poorly started the fire. No. It was always cursed then, not the bro of Harwin. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that one can go with the uh, the learned hands, everybody died. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I think we can. Yeah, that one's, mm, I don't know about that one, Mushroom. Good good fodder for humor, though. He claims that Adam and Alan are the children of Coralise rather than the, quote, official explanation of Lenor, which. Uh, This is what I'm with. 
I think we're all agreed, except for Sean, who doesn't really know Alan and Adam and Alan at all. You'll you'll, you'll uh, encounter that next season, but you'll see. Yeah. But no, I I absolutely just, I I really, this is one that I am 99% sure I feel that they're they're not Lainors. Fire and Blood agrees. It's not like even this, Fire and Blood officially is like, yeah, this is probably true. Marshall's probably right on this one. It just Mm -hmm. sounds so, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Gildane's like this is one of the instances where mushroom might actually be. Like, right. I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure even Sean can get why this, why we feel this way, because it's the the idea here is that Lenor fathered bastards. Yeah, and mushroom is like, no, probably not. Like, yeah, why would Lenor, like, yeah, a gay man who he, didn't have children with his wife, have with his wife yeah. that he seemed to care about and have an obligation to, but then with other random women? Yeah, it doesn't yeah. make well, sense, and, does it? It's like, <laughs> and in both the show and in Fire and Blood, you actually get the impression that Rhaenyra and Lenor had a decent relationship. Yes. It just wasn't a sexual one. Yes. Yeah. Moving on, Mushroom claims that Rhaenyra and Damon named their child Aegon as a slight to Alicent and her Aegon. <laughs> Which That's is like, valid. valid. I'm yeah. sure, yeah. Hard I can to argue it. against that. <laughs> I mean, when you name your kid Aegon, when there's already an Aegon who's like a... Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think so. You can't not... You know, I'm going to say... Mm-hmm. I'm afraid we did all watch season eight of Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of things here. One, I probably don't want to dwell on this too long or hear too much about it, but just because Lanor didn't have those kids, why does that mean Corliss did? I, maybe, I'm sure there's more to it. I don't You'll even get, know. Yeah, those those, yeah, are, yeah, you don't know those yeah. kids yet. We'll get there. You'll get there. But here's another thing I've realized is that a, a couple times I've even thought like, oh man, am I being spoiled when I hear about Aegon Third? But like, well, that could be named after... There's a lot of there's, Aegons. There's a lot of different Aegons. Exactly. And I wonder even if that was part of George's intent to kind of muddy the waters of like who alliances be or what outcomes of things could be. So absolutely. So many Aegons. Yeah. So yeah. It does help. It does help us avoid spoilers. Like we can throw some Aegons yeah. around. I've no, I noticed that when I was like mentioning Aegon the third before. I was like, well, you were, Shea expressed a little yeah. concern. There's like, you know, I'm not sure Sean's going to know what Aegon the third, whether that he's not going to necessarily yeah. be able to figure out who that is or yeah. yeah. I don't know where Aegon the fourth and Aegon the third lie. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't even necessarily In tell the, you the timeline. Yeah. It anyway. tell you that. But yes, I was concerned. You're right, Aziz. I really was like, oh no. <laughs> I was too, but then I realized, like, well, no. I, I thought that means that. Like, no, 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 it doesn't mean that. Another. It yeah. might mean that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's mushroom as the source for baby Visenya being draconic and looking like all that, all the different physical ailments that she was born with. And, and that, that goes along with him being the one to carry mm-hmm. her for, to the funeral yard. And that one seems accurate based on the show having that, if we're taking the show as being, you know, having some something to go on. Yeah, and of course, it's not the first example of that. Danny has it. Mm-hmm. There's like the ones from Magor's wives who were maybe in that category as well. So yeah, this is, this is well supported by other examples elsewhere. Uh, here's the one we mentioned briefly before, that Aegon II sired two bastard children on the street of Silk the same year his twins with Helena were born. That part is sometimes gets lost in the shuffle that they were born the, the same time as Jaehaerys and Jahera. Included in this set of rumors is that he won one of these women at auction. He won her maidenhead at Oof. auction, which is yeah. And the other was one of his mother's maidservants, which is similar mm-hmm. to the show in which it was his wife's maidservant instead of his mother's maidservant. So that's a yep. pretty small difference there in terms of It was the, the nanny. The nanny, yeah, which yeah. is worse. They it made it worse. The yeah. They were like, let's make this worse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's make Aegon worse. Yeah. They totally made Aegon sleep with the nanny. He apparently claims part or full credit for the idea of the dragon seeds in the first place, giving the idea to Jace, which an odd Don't thing to take it. credit for. 
Yeah, I, I feel like the show's version where that was Damon's idea seems more... Yeah. So he's the one who's all gung-ho about using dragons in, in warfare. Yeah. So I feel like he's the one who's pushing that. I think you're right, yeah. Oh, the mushroom might be tugging at his pants like, remember my idea. There's a time to talk about it. Like the painted table's taller than mm-hmm. him, so they wouldn't... Yeah. So we keep coming back to that. It keeps fitting. So everything... I think Mushroom was talking about a different kind of dragon seed, actually. <laughs> he wasn't sorry. pulling on his leg. Sorry, sorry. Okay. Uh, uh, sorry. Move on, move on. I had to say it, though. Okay. Yeah. Everything about Sarah Snow comes from Mushroom. Mm. All of it, including her existence. <laughs> the fact that she exists at all comes from Mushroom. The, the romance, all of it comes from Mushroom. None of it's corroborated elsewhere. Sean, that's we don't. We're not going to detail this one because it's pretty spoilery. But just the fact that she exists at all comes. There's from a-, a Stark bastard daughter potentially, yeah. but maybe she doesn't even exist. I think Mushroom heard the tale of Bale the Bard and got inspired. <laughs> he could have. That's a good one. But he would, if anyone would know, like he's going to have going to have access to Jace and talk to him, and yeah, his home's Dragonstone. So no, if anyone I would feel know, like this was very possible. It's plausible, like I, at least. I really mm-hmm. don't like. For me personally, I kind of don't want it to be real. Like, I don't, like, in the House of the Dragon, what I think in Fire and Blood is different from what I want House of the Dragon to do, in other words. In House of the Dragon, I would prefer to not have a Sarah Snow. And there's a lot of different ways they can go with making things meaningful with Chase and the Stark connection in my my book. But Mm -hmm. I do think that the argument for Sarah Snow to me and why I think it could be meaningful is because I feel like Jace is someone who knows in House of the Dragon, he knows he's a bastard. I feel like he, he would be having unique. him bond with a bastard. He would bond yeah. with a fellow bastard, noble bastard. Sure. I feel like there could be a lot there. So yeah, you can I, see I the vacillate power of that plot line, between sure. how I think they'll go with that. I agree. But no, I do. Brandilyn Price said my thought here Sarah Snow equals Craig and Stark. It is known. <laughs> I am low key, high key, a Jace <laughs> yes. Craig and shipper. I do prefer the idea <laughs> of they had a little romance to That's- uh, Sarah. Jason. I love Craig. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, but so yes, I'm I, I I agree with you, Brandolin, actually, very much. I was dancing around it, but that's my take. <laughs> it's Mushroom's claim that Vermax left a clutch of eggs at Winterfell while Jace was up there. Now here's where our two source episodes come together because Fire and Blood calls this absurd because they're sure Vermax was male. <laughs> and they mention that Septon Barth. Yeah. When Septon Barth claims that dragons can change sex, it's ludicrous. But we know in the real world, this really happens with amphibians and lizard species. It's that we've mentioned it several times. Like, I've personally seen it with fish in my own home. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, so and, it's not ludicrous. <laughs> and, of course, there's the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Of course. Yeah. Yes, where we have magic to fill think- that gap here. <laughs> I think there's even examples of mammals doing this, by the way. I, I wish I knew a little bit better, but I think there's an example of a mammal doing Maybe it. Maybe something weird like a platypus, because <laughs> they actually uh, lay eggs. He's also the main source for much of what we know about Ulf the White and Hugh Hammer. And of course, those two seem like pretty bad dudes. Mushroom makes them seem even worse, I suppose, which so kind of fits. So for speaking to his agenda... That's a pretty yeah. anti-too-small folk people mm, there. You know, for yeah, like, that's a good point. You, might, you know, depending on who, who who submitted this, you might think they might paint them a little better, but I don't know. That's a very good point. Well, but also they are two small folk who caused a great deal of harm to many more small yeah. folks. Yeah, so good point. On the one hand, like I, you may want be because what the way that they're portrayed at first is not quite as bad as what happens later on. So kind of, it may well be that at first everyone's like, oh yeah, that's really cool. But then a little later on, they're like, oh wait, no, these guys are terrible. 
Whoops. <laughs> Next up, we have that it was Sylvana Sand who was behind Game and Pale Hair's legal edicts, which were, of course, characterized by their pro-woman attitude. Canon to me. Fact. Super believable. Canon. Very believable. Canon. That's yeah. it. That's yeah. It. yeah. Of course, of course, it was this like Dornish woman who had a little yeah. bit more. Yeah, of course. If it it's a lie, sad. it's so well crafted um, that it's, it's hard so to challenge. Good. And of yeah. course, I, I refuse yeah. to, like, I, I accept that that's true. And this comes, uh, brings me back to Mazaria again, because y'all will probably remember that I have a little bit of a theory. I mean, I would like to get Essie and Sylvana Sand. Like, I would. But following the law of conservation of characters and all that, I do think there's a strong chance that Mazaria will take a lot of that plot line, even even a potentially extending to the lesbian romance of it all. Like that is also possible. That would be fabulous. Uh, so just speaking to the Mazaria mushroom connection more potentially, but I still don't think that's the case in the book. It was Sylvana. We're going to meet a character called Alice Rivers in season two, Sean. That's a, a bastard of Hall, And... According to Mushroom, she was, quote, a malign enchantress who bathed in the blood of virgins to preserve her youth. Hmm. Okay, hey, it's then. Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah, yeah, we've heard that one a few times. Yeah. So, yeah, Elizabeth Bathory, who was perhaps a medieval, was that right? Serial killer? Or early, modern. early modern. She was okay. the late 16th, early 17th century, okay. I believe. There's been some good um, podcast episodes on her. I recommend yes. the, uh, the History Chicks episode on her in particular. Noble Blood also did a good one okay. on her. Right on. So as part of this, he claimed she was far older than her appearance, which, of course, that's the point of preserving your youth. But he's pointing out that it's a substantial amount of youth has been preserved here. Not just it's not like she's 10 years younger that he he claims that she's multiple generations younger, that she was even Lionel Strong's wet nurse and maybe even to Lionel's father <laughs> so that she would be like <laughs> way older, which is the more standard accepted version is that she is a bastard daughter of Lionel, but yeah. Mushroom claims that she was wet nurse to Lionel. So these are pretty she could also have been, far apart. Yeah, absolutely. which is why my, my favorite take is her as a bastard sister to Lionel. Yeah. I don't know that I think that's where House of the Dragon's going to go. I, I, I'm not sure. Like just looking at Harwin and Lara. I, it's hard. Like those, all those actors were so close in age in like reality. I don't yeah. really know what they're going for there. But I like the idea that it's between what Mushroom says here that like, no, she wasn't a wet nurse to Lionel's father, but like she was old enough older than Lionel enough to be wet nurse to her like little bastard uh, brother. Maybe not was his wet nurse, but maybe quote unquote old enough to be his wet nurse. Yeah, you know, yeah, but like, like, yeah, it was that. his older sister and a bastard sister. Mm. Is my preferred headcan in there? But yeah, I, I certainly do not think that she was a generation before Lionel. Like, I don't think she was that old. Yeah, I think she was Lionel's. My assumption was that she was either Lionel's generation or like close to, or just like barely little, out of like his generation. That's a little half in between. Like, sometimes yeah. you're like, yeah, point five. Yeah. I prefer for fantastic things to be kept at a minimum. And so I hope they don't make her magically look like she's 25 when she's really 100 or something. Yeah. But I can see the show like having these rumors about her if her character is suspicious in some way yeah, or someone has she, it out for her for some reason. But Yeah, she is 50 uh, and she just looks real good and looks like she's in her 20s. Yeah. And then people say some things about her. Yeah, something like that is kind of more like in her 40s is kind in of In this world, you have to keep it as a potential like Melisandre yes. really is I don't know, hundreds of years old. But that Melisandre like... Uh, is playing a certain role in the show that requires that. I don't know if this Elder Rivers character needs to be really be a hundred and she's only yeah. whatever. No. Yeah. But she is does have mystical associations with her. So calling her a malign yeah. enchantress 
who bathed in the blood of virgins is an overstatement, but also not necessarily entirely inaccurate in that she did seem to have a magical association yeah, that I think was real. This is the only magical thing about her. We'll yeah, not the way, blood yeah. of virgins thing, but the, the part that like, maybe she could see through werewoods or maybe she did have green jeans or maybe she had something that gave her a magical edge. He claims she I mean, Baron Hall's right by the Isle of Faces. Yeah. Yeah. I feel mm-hmm. like. Yeah, it's yeah. You, it's in that area, yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> mystical zone. A hinge of the world-ish, maybe. He also mm-hmm. claims she used love potions, which, honestly, this one, I think he has to to keep his story straight because he's the source of the claim that there was competition for Alice Rivers' love. And he claims that Kristen Cole was one of the ones competing for her, which is completely at odds with his earlier claim that Kristen was as virtuous and chaste as an aged septa. So the only way a guy like that is going to go for anyone is with love potions. I think that's pretty strong evidence that this is a false claim, (laughs) at least Mm -hmm. the love potions. Yeah. Aside from the love potions claim, by the way, this is more evidence, mushrooms seeming to contradict himself, that it's just two stories from two people from two time periods. I like it. Yep. Good call. Mm -hmm. Good call. He's the source for the brothel queens, which is such a wild story that you would think there was corroboration if that really happened. Sean, there was... I doubt it. This is a thing where some royals were forced to be used, forced into sex work. In a brothel. In a brothel. Yeah. so... It's like, what? Like, again, this would Highly be corroborated. Like, there would be a lot of witnesses to this if it really happened. So it's kind yeah. of, it could have been concealed after the fact, but it's hard to accept because It of would that. be hard to conceal something like yeah. that. Especially for multiple women that have been forced into this. Although there was the source I mentioned earlier where there was the incident where a woman was supposedly concealed in a London cookshop for several weeks and nobody knew about it. Except for one source. I mean, just to play devil's advocate briefly, maybe, but I still think it's highly unlikely given the identities of the two women involved. Gotcha. He claims that Damon and Nettles were lovers. Now, Sean, you haven't met Nettles yet. You will eventually. And some of you who have read Fire and Blood will be instantly like, eh, I don't think so. There's more. Some people will say, eh, I feel strongly. Some people will think yes. And frankly, Mm -hmm. uh, there's uh, some compelling arguments for and against it. The arguments against it are the local history of Maidenpool, where much of this took place, says no. But their counter evidence is not very good. They're like, oh, Damon wouldn't sleep with her. He was old and she was young. What? Uh, like, nah. That's not uh, counter evidence. He also, they also claim she wasn't good looking enough, which is like, mm, I don't mm. think that's very good evidence either. (laughs) But they do claim it was more of a, daughterly father, like he doted on her, which is, that is believable, you know? So that will be, these, a lot of these will be very interesting to see how the TV handles them or just doesn't use them. Because yeah, it probably doesn't I'll have say, room for all of these, but. Yeah, sometimes for things, when the, sometimes the TV show chooses a direction, I'm like, yes, this like makes it canon to me. I don't know, I don't know what variables go into it that like shows that it mm-hmm. proves it is canon to me, but sometimes it does. Sometimes they choose something and I'm like, I still think it could go either way in Fire and Blood. Yeah. And honestly, with the Nettles thing, I think they could go either way and I don't think I would be like, this is proof in Fire and Blood that it's one way or another to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, yeah. I don't know that anything will ever decide it for the, the, for the actual history of the, of the text that I'll ever feel like I know, even when I see it on screen. Hmm. Whereas, yeah, there's definitely been things where I was like, no, this is like, well, I, I, we were talking about some of it earlier, but there's definitely some where I'm like, no, this is, this is correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like headcanon at least. Yeah. And, and not just headcanon, but it, there's supporting evidence as well as just we want to believe it. <laughs> oh, the, like Visenya's birth. That was one okay, where I, yeah. to me, for whatever reason, there's no doubt that that was the canon in Fire and Blood, but yeah. I still mm-hmm. have room for doubt for other situations. 
Good example. Yeah, perfect. So I, I wanted to have in this episode lo- some examples of surprising agreement where it's surprising that Mushroom and Eustace agree or that Mushroom and some other source agree. I didn't find a lot of those probably because when they agree, it's not interesting. That's not included. Mm-hmm. So unless it's a really controversial thing that they're like, but we have multiple sources agree that it actually happened, which is a way of something that seems unlikely. That's when you would want to provide agreement from the sources to say, yeah. no, look, this... This yeah. actually probably really did happen. Yeah, so plenty of times that yeah, must, that the, the source they they might have agreed, but there was no reason for Gildane to say and out. they both like there's no reason for him to point that it out. It really belabors the point if you just unless you like the sources agree on this like, every sentence be like the sources agree and this and this <laughs> sources agree. Yeah, it would be this isn't a spreadsheet. <laughs> like you said, Kavita, <laughs> it's supposed to be entertaining, especially this one because it's fake <laughs> history. <laughs> but but even real history is has a narrative to it. So the example here of surprising agreement is that both Mushroom and Eustace agree that Carl Corey killed Lenor, which of course the show threw us for a loop there and having Carl just be part of the plot. I loved it. It was such, it was what a twist. That. Yeah, we were like, whoa, we didn't see that coming. But Mushroom adds, so they agree on that. Mushroom adds that Damon paid him to do it, which was also portrayed in the show as Damon paying him to be a part of it, but not to actually kill him. Yeah, but then Mushroom also adds that Damon then had Carl murdered after employing Carl to do his dirty work. Which well, Carl did fits. disappear. Kill, you know, they both disappear. Kill the loose ends. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. they both disappear. So. That could yeah, that, yeah. So they do both disappear. So it does it all fit? So this is a good one where they agree on the initial part. Then Mushroom adds like more scurrilous details that fit. If Damon was willing to pay a man to kill Lanor, he would probably want to cover his tracks. Yeah, this is <laughs> one where. I, I haven't really entertained the idea of whether House of the Dragons canon could be correct. Like, is it theoretically possible in Fire and Blood that the House of the Dragons was more accurate than this? I don't think so, but I don't know that I have any proof that means that it couldn't be the case. In this case, maybe not, because I think they had Lenore's body. Okay, the, that's my book. question, is if there was hard well, proof. I'm not positive they had his body. Yeah, if they, they had Lenore's body. They had a body. They had a body. A body. Yeah. yeah. They had a body. Yeah. yeah. Whether it was actually Lenor's body is entirely separate question. Yeah, because in the show, the book, there's no like burned body to throw that off. No. Like that was just well. Okay, so like here, here's where I'm going with, with this as well. Is Carl, that, it was like ha- it happened in public. Yeah. Like Lenor was stabbed. Okay, yeah, in, in the book, it happened in supposedly it happened. Well, this is yeah. my take on it. Is that George? I, I mean, I've waxed on about this that I, I George hasn't made his mind up for a lot of situations, mm. right? He hasn't decided yet. That's what makes it easier for him to write. That he he has that. Oh, he's he's commented on it, right? So my take is that are there things in House of the Dragon that he sees on screen and he's like, that's my new headcanon. Like, yeah. he has not oh, done anything in the that. fire and blood that means this could not be the case. And mm. is it possible that he could watch that and be like, hmm, stroke my chin. Actually, <laughs> if I ever wrote more about this, Lenor did survive. Like, I, I think that the text does not preclude that from happening, whether I think that that could be you know, anything, but I, I think it's still possible. Hmm. I say let's all let's all propose the headcanon where Lenor goes off and becomes a gentleman pirate. Yes, yes, I'm on board with that as well. Absolutely. His I still have not written death. Lenor off. His flag means uh, yes. I've not written him off of House of the Dragon either. I, I would like to see a wrap up on that. We'll see though. I would like to see yeah, I'd like to see them at least sort of call back to it at some point. Yeah, I would. Um, he took the blue Valarian flag, added some purple to it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Okay, uh, so here's an example of where they somewhat disagree and there's some discussions that come from that. One that's kind of maybe 
irrelevant on terms of the disagreement, but it shows how the sources can differ on even when it isn't a matter of substance necessarily. Although in this case, maybe it is. Here's what we're talking about. The death of Lord Beesbury. Everyone basically blames Kristen Cole, but there's some differences on how he was killed, whether he was tossed out a window, whether his throat was cut, and the show had a third version. Only one dissenting voice there says Beesbury was arrested by Kristen Cole and died in captivity, and that's Grand Maester Orwile. So even though Orwile's take is not repeated by anyone else, Orwile was actually there. But we don't actually have Orwile's account. We have Munkin's account of Orwile's account. And Orwile <laughs> was kind of notably tried to cover his, his own his own ass. Right? Yes, and um, we know Orwile mm-hmm. tried to cover his own butt. Yes, you're right about that. So there's a multiple reasons not to just take Orwile at face value because it's not face value and he might be lying. Munkin is also the example Tyrion cites as incorrect while discussing the tale of Sir Byron Swan attempting to repeat the tale of Serwin of the Mirror Shield. So we have another example of Munkin being wrong to support the idea that Munkins shouldn't be believed when discussing Orwell necessarily. You know, it's not proof, but it's, it casts doubt on Munkin's accounts in general. And here's where we point out in general as well, Eustace was biased towards the Greens and Mushroom towards the Blacks. But also Orwell kind of favored the Blacks, which is a little interesting, but that's mostly because of just how things went afterwards. This is a great case of Orwell's trying to save his own skin. Most likely. And if Munkin knew Orwile was being pro-black in his analysis, he may have tried to correct for that. He's like, okay, I know this source was biased, so let me try to undo some of this bias in my version of it. But he may not have done a very good job of that. <laughs> well, is that something we see, Kavita, out in, in the real world of uh, an author interpreting someone else's source, interpreting a source's bias and trying to like filter some of that bias out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Easy yes place. on that yep. one. Huh? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Easy yes. Yeah. Uh, authors are constantly ta- like chroniclers are constantly talking over each other, especially if they're coming from different historical traditions. You will have chron- you will have like one set of chroniclers absolutely shitting on the people who came before them, <laughs> saying like, those guys had no idea what they were talking about. They did not know how to write history. I know how to write history. <laughs> I have gone back and I have looked at everything they've said and everything they say is wrong. <laughs> like, there are entire rants embedded in these chronicles about how X historian is completely wrong and no one should trust them. Wow. It's even better when it when the religious conflict enters into it because then you have like Protestant historians screaming at Catholic historians who are screaming back and it's it's a whole thing. <laughs> so another one that we sort of saw on TV a little bit, or at least a version of it, is when Orwell delivers the message to Rhaenyra's court that Aegon has taken the throne. On the show, it's Otto Hightower leading that with Orwell just kind of standing there. In the book version, Orwell is the leader of this delegation. Munkin claims Orwell was erudite, which again, Munkin was using Orwell's own, (laughs) while claiming he was erudite is like, okay, yeah, sure you were. Mushroom says he stammered and voided his bladder. Mushroom (laughs) was there. So he has his usual standard caveats applied. Why not both? Yeah, he was erudite. And be erudite. While the fluid was leaking down his leg. Yeah, maybe he started off erudite, but also really needed to pee. Uh, Yeah, yeah. The way we're told it goes is, yeah, I love that. The way we're told it goes is he's delivering, he's discussing, and then, and Rainier starts to kind of intimidate him, and he's like, starts to back down a little bit. Yeah, he could have been erudite and then had a dragon, like, poke out, and he's like, oh. He started to lose his Uh, cool, which is understandable. Yet another why not both. Yeah, that's that's cool. 
Okay, so here's a really good one. Here's a really good one. This is, a, this is one of the deeper ones we have here. Eustace claims Viserys died in his sleep. Mushroom claims Allison poisoned him. Mushroom wasn't there. Kavita and Nina had a great spirited debate here in, the, in our document. Why don't you take us through some of the points that were made on both sides and what came of this? Because it's really interesting, but it's also a lot for us. It to is. It's a ton. Yeah. Like, I think we actually came out on the same side at the end of it. I think partly it was my sort of not expressing myself very clearly. But essentially what I was saying was I really liked the way that House of the Dragon dealt with this because they had Damon be the one who's like, oh, Viserys was poisoned. And everyone looks at him and goes, no. <laughs> it, it, Viserys, who we just saw, who was literally rotting from the inside. Like, why would you need no. to poison that like, guy? Yeah. <laughs> there's no reason to poison that guy. All you had to do was wait five minutes. Yeah, just, just push him um, over and he'll die. Yeah, just yeah. breathe on him. You know? the, <laughs> Viserys' illness in Fire and Blood is not described as quite on the level as it was on the show. On the show, it was clearly a thematic point. It was clearly meant to kind of like the land and the king are both rotting and all like it, it was a whole thing. Whereas in Fire and Blood, what we get is a very gradual decline over a period of two decades. Viserys becomes less mobile. He develops gout. He starts having kind of trouble with his heart. Very typical parts of kind of advanced aging, only they're happening when he's a little bit younger. Um, partly because hard. of, <laughs> yeah, part, partly like he's partying too hard. He's a party king. Yeah. And we didn't get that in the show. He wasn't a party king in the show, or at least not after the first episode. We saw party king Viserys in the first episode, and then it just kind of vanished. Yeah. But in Fire and Blood, the party king is kind of there the whole time. It's not quite on the level of Robert Baratheon. We don't get kind of the binge drinking and the womanizing on the same level. But we it, there's so many descriptions of how he loved to eat. He loved to go to tournaments. He didn't participate in them, but he liked to watch them. And he, he liked all of those things. And there's also this reference that Nina made by the end of his life in 129 AC, Viserys' chest pains had grown so severe that he could no longer climb a flight of stairs. Mm -hmm. So that's very, it's you a can big deal, see... Yeah. The writing on the wall. Then the hand and, injury happens. Yeah, and the hand that. injury happens, and it goes gangrenous. And my Rhaenyra's Meister is apparently able to kind of amputate his fingers and solve the problem temporarily. But having a wound like that when you're older is going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are there. And I talked about kind of not just sort of historical precedents for this, which again was Edward IV, who I talked about earlier, but. One of the things that I also wanted to bring up is this idea of not what happened, but the perception of what happened. So Mushroom is the one who brings up the rumor that Alicent poisoned Viserys. I don't think he brings it up because anyone actually believes that Alicent poisoned Viserys, but it's there for political reasons. Mm. Anytime a monarch dies, unless a bunch of people saw it happen, there's going to be at least one person who says, oh yeah, maybe so-and-so was poisoned. That always happens pretty much any time a, oh. a medieval or early modern monarch died, unless it was something that was very blatantly obvious. Like death in um, battle, maybe. Yeah, death in battle. Like no one thought Richard III was poisoned because he had a <laughs> knife through his head. Um, it could have been a poison knife. It could have been. That would have been overkill. Yeah, it's so both. funny to me because we, we, we do have theories about Tywin being poisoned, even though we saw him die very like yeah. overtly, but there's still those theories mm -hmm. about that. Yeah. The yeah, there are still theories about Tywin being poisoned. People believed Edward IV had been poisoned because he caught pneumonia very, uh, suppose, like modern historians believe that it was probably pneumonia that killed him. 
but he caught, he fell ill very quickly and died within the space of a couple of weeks. So people immediately went, oh my God, maybe he was poisoned. But most likely not. That's almost certainly not what happened. Same thing with Henry VIII. Henry VIII had a very long, debilitating illness and he finally died. But again, people were like, oh, maybe he was poisoned. Probably not. Probably he died because he had a really bad illness. Again, like any time a monarch died from an illness that wasn't obvious, if it was the bubonic plague, everybody knew. But if it was just some sort of respiratory thing, no one could have been sure. And also from Mushroom's perspective, given the timing, which happened when Rhaenyra was unable to do anything about claiming her throne, you could see how Mushroom would want to put out a It's like, oh yeah, maybe she was poisoned. Maybe this was on purpose. Maybe the timing is just too good. But again, Mushroom wasn't there. And if we actually look, and this is what Nina points out, if we actually look at it from the Greens perspective, it doesn't make sense. For the Greens, it was to their advantage to have Viserys alive because he was their puppet king. Yeah. And as soon as he I died, totally point, yeah. they knew there was going to be a succession crisis. Yeah. So Stringing it out actually, to get their ducks in a row yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, they, they wouldn't want him to die until and unless he explicitly named Aegon as his heir, yeah. which as far as we know, he never did. Right. Or until the kids have more battle experience, the yeah, dragons yeah. are bigger. Some, yeah. That was one thought I had too in this discussion was that I, I felt like Nina made a lot of points as to why the Greens logically wouldn't want to poison him. But I don't think it's safe to assume the Greens are all logical. Someone could have been yeah. illogical. Uh, someone could have you yeah. know, made a mistake. Someone who wasn't the Greens could have put... I still don't yeah. think it's likely, but I do think it's reasonable to consider how or why someone might have done it or why someone might want to spread that rumor. Again, if we think there's some agenda behind Mushroom's writings or the person who collected his writings, I think there's decent motivation for someone to want to have the suspicion going, even if there's no logical reason for it. And even if there's no logical reason for it, sometimes people are illogical too. So that's also a factor. Absolutely. Yeah. And my perspective was basically from sort of looking at it from a historical writing perspective. Because the last time I was on this podcast, one of the things that I mentioned was the death of King Henry VI in 1471 and its reportage in multiple sources. The ones who were favorable to the king who replaced him talked about how he died from, quote, pure displeasure and melancholy because that's the thing people die from. The more ambivalent ones claimed that he died mysteriously in the Tower of London, but declined to mention a cause. And then the later, more hostile ones accused someone, most specifically Richard of Gloucester, of later Richard III, of having stabbed him. Mm -hmm. So you can see kind of the progression of how these sources build on each other. And we see this happening in Fire and Blood as well. While I do not believe that the Greens poisoned Viserys, I'm absolutely 100% in the he died of natural causes camp. The pieces are there for people hostile to the Greens to make the claim and to make that claim stick. Mm, Even if like the Greens were not okay. responsible, people probably believe they'd done it, at least in part because they are scrambling to hide the fact that Viserys is dead. And people are going to look at that and they're going to go, well, why are you doing that if you're not guilty? But the fact is that what they're likely doing is they're reacting to something unexpected rather than proceeding along with a plan that they had already arranged. Mm, I see. Like, like in a show, we saw Damon, even if Damon thought about it and realized the Greens wouldn't poison him, Damon's not thinking logically. And even if he did logically think about it, realized they wouldn't have a good motivation to poison him, eh, it's still good motivation for him to rally people to war. It's still propaganda. <laughs> so, he can use that. He's like, any, anything goes. Yeah. He's not, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about ethics in war. Like, 
Not Damon, no. anyway. Some people might. And, and people in faraway lands that don't know the details of Vassaris' life and illness at court can easily be swayed they can't by the propaganda. They don't know any of the detail, details. Especially right. Damon yeah. on a dragon saying, join me in battle because your king was poisoned. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. It's totally true. Yeah, I, I totally see this argument. It's really well made. And to add to it a little bit, Within this fandom, every Targaryen king or every king that dies, yeah, people are like, were they poisoned? Yeah, like like Balon, Damon and Viserys' father died of a stitch in his belly. Like, people are like, what is it? Was he poisoned? Hand to the king? Like, he was next in line? Like, yeah, there's theories there about that, and they're not totally invalid. There may be something to it. And that even vaguely gets brought up on the show when Otto gets fired. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I have a cat on my lap. Oh, look at that. Just Xerxes. so y'all know, anyone who was not looking at the camera should see <laughs> The next one from Mushroom is that Lady Jane of the Vale asked Jace to go down on her <laughs> in order to win the Vale's support in <laughs> the no. war no. on the Dance no. of the Dragons. No. no, Jane Aaron is a lesbian. Yes. Everyone knows. Yeah. Yes. Did not happen. Not exactly. very likely. Zero <laughs> yes. percent chance. Yeah. Similarly categorized here, Eustace says Ironrod, the master of laws appointed by the Greens, got his nickname for his unbending attitudes on matters of law, but, quote, Mushroom declares that Ironrod was named for the stiffness of his member, having sired 29 children on four wives before the last died of exhaustion. (laughs) (laughs) Why not both? (laughs) Why can't your laws be as stiff as your member? (laughs) Exactly. Why not both? Yeah, and there are some other examples here too. Like we got a dog and a cat on screen now. Is, oh yeah. Got Things like Mushroom says this, but Eustace says this. Sometimes that framing implies it's a contradiction, but it's usually just like if they just said and instead of but, like Mushroom says this and Eustace says this, then you, then you can actually set it up for why not both. But often it's framed as a competition between these things when really option C should be included, which is why not both? Yeah, which is maybe a flaw in not how Fire and Blood is written, but something that maybe George wanted to portray with how a lot of sources work. What do you think? A flaw in how history is written. Sure. What do you think about that, Mm -hmm. Kavita? Is that that accurate? It is. That is absolutely accurate. Now, like that's the difference between and and but is legion. And one of the things that you see in the early modern sources in particular, like the, the big compilations of chronicles that we see in the 16th century and 17th century, where they're essentially pulling together all of these medieval sources into a giant book. One of the things that we see is these multiple accounts of the same thing, where they say, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said that, so-and-so said that. You, the reader, you pick which one you like the best. Like they would include that in the writing yes. after these different options. And I can't help but think sometimes, by the way, maybe neither, especially yeah. if your your sources are dubious in the first place, maybe, you know, both or neither could be options. The the story that I told earlier about where, uh, where the typo changed someone's age from 17 to 12, that's actually one of those instances where like multiple versions of the same story are put out there and... People are like, well, the thing says he's 12. I'm like, no, he wasn't 12. He was 17. (laughs) That was an early typo. He was 17. Okay, well, we have a few more things to get to. There's a couple things in the document here that we won't quite have time for. There's so many examples of Mushroom and his Wait, sources. Wait, you say we quoting. don't have Mushroom for it? Uh, Hey! Oh, (laughs) hell yeah. That was good. One thing that we noticed here 
that is in Fire and Blood, one like pattern, is that he seems pretty anti-Amond, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. He refers mm-hmm. to Amond, at one point he said, he refers to the weather outside Storm's End, the night of Lucerius's death, as black as Prince Amond's heart. <laughs> like that's, yeah, he's got it out for Amond. Yeah, that is not... Sure. Mushroom was real. I feel like Amond would be very humorless and would really not mm. like Mushroom and that it would be a real... Like, mushroom doesn't like the guys who don't have a sense of humor. Yeah, so I think... He doesn't I laugh at my be, jokes. He he's going to be the butt of my jokes. He mocked right. Aegon Third for his lack of sense of humor too. Yeah. And Aegon Third was an otherwise decent person, you know, just <laughs> traumatized, poor kid, you know, and all that. But yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, that totally fits. And as well, it also fits because the reaction to Lucerius' death, which we saw right at the end of the season, if Mushroom is there, he's going to feel her raw emotion, see their reaction. And he's maybe that's the emotional weather vein for him. Like, this is the guy that did that. And so it just for then, from then on, he's anti Amon because. Well, and he wasn't there. Like the account, like he was not physically there. He didn't see any of this. Everything he's getting is second or third hand. He reports that Amond cut out Lucerus's eyes and and gave them to (laughs) one of Baratheon's daughters. (laughs) <laughs> after the fact. I d- it's like, uh, where did he get the body? Didn't Vagar eat Yeah, where did he, like, yeah, he found the body. Exactly, like, yeah, if there was a body, how did that, did he find it? Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's not very easy to believe, yeah. Okay, let's talk about his best quips. Let's finish with that. There's quite a few good ones. Let's, we, can, we can talk about them and react to them and that'll be a good way to finish. This is a thing we like to do with, with my other, much, much smaller podcast, the, the podcast of Surprise, the Witcher podcast that we do. We save all the jokes for the end. And it's a good way to, I think, to exit an episode with laughter. Yeah, yeah. We're ending with the wit and wisdom. That's true. We're ending, yeah, we're ending with the wit and wisdom. Yeah, you're right. We couldn't find, like, Eustace's accounts weren't very funny. (laughs) (laughs) So that's important to note. Though both did say Beesbury spoke up in a waspish tone, which was, that's that's a little secret pun there. At a particular low point for Rhaenyra, he reports this conversation, quote, My faithful mushroom, her grace call me, with it all men were true as you, I should make you my hand. When I replied that I would sooner be her consort, she laughed. <laughs> that, okay, so this is one of the reasons people would think of Tyrion, because that is something Tyrion would say. Absolutely. Why not, you know, why not, or why not both? Yeah. <laughs> that's actually a book, that's that. I could totally see that yeah, exchange happening. I agree. And night, like, and that just being something that, that they, a joke between them, I could see that. I mean, I could, yeah, I could definitely see Tyrion just saying this to Danny. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Honestly. Yeah. As I said at the beginning, he's the one. Credited with the nickname Broken Bones for break bones. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Fair. Yeah. It sucks, but it's fair. Yeah. The yeah. Queen That Never Was, which is a great nickname. We yeah. use that one a lot. And the Butcher's Ball, which is a battle that has, you haven't seen yet, Sean. So that's it's a Or a ball. Nickname. It could just be a dance. Oh, yeah, it could be a dance. Yeah. You don't Sorry. Know. You know, we don't spoiler. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the Dance of the Dragons. So there should be dances within the dance, you know, it's sub dances within the group. Sub dances. Of the dragons. <laughs> <laughs> he nicknamed the, the shepherd the dead shepherd in part because of his stench. He smelled like the cor- a corpse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The shepherd's a character we have, you haven't met yet, Sean. He's a sort of high sparrowish, yeah. okay. but a little more mysterious. And there's a line in reference to how the commoners should be feared. And if you think of the riot at King's Landing in A Clash of Kings slash season two, this line that comes next really hits home. And this is Mushroom saying it. Drunks they may be, but a drunken man knows no fear. Fool's eye, but a fool can kill a king. Rats that too, but a thousand rats can bring down a bear. 
I saw it happen once down there in Flea Bottom. I'm not sure he really saw that. A thousand rats bringing mm-hmm. down a bear. That part I kind of doubt. But, but, Maybe it was a Mormont. Maybe some... Uh, <laughs> some <laughs> that I can believe. Common folk of Flea Bottom. A thousand Mormonts? Night. <laughs> no, no. A thousand rats. Mormons. 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 Yeah. Uh-huh. A lot of rats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if there's Larry Strong rats, maybe... But he's right there. Like, yes, quantity can can overcome quality if there's enough if there's enough of that quantity. <laughs> Sometimes it takes a lot of quantity. But yeah, so that's it's almost patch facian because Tyrion, King Joffrey, was quote unquote murdered by Tyrion, whom he had made his fool. Remember, Tyrion was made Joffrey's fool. Also, Dantos, but <laughs> that was a lot, that was a longer thing. There, it was just at the wedding where Tyrion was made his fool. Not to mention Joffrey nearly got himself specifically killed by starting that riot, by mocking the crowd. For spoiler purposes, we shall avoid this full context of this conversation, but it also does involve Prince Joffrey Velaryon because Prince Joffrey was arguing to go take action and this Joffrey here got killed for his actions. Yeah. <laughs> Conveniently, not just for spoiler purposes, but for time purposes. Yes. <laughs> Conveniently. Yeah. I was trying to work in the caveat, 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 but I couldn't figure Cavi- it out. I couldn't figure out how to work out. years, Microsoft Word thought my name was Caveat. <laughs> <laughs> so Microsoft Word was got there before me. And tried caveat and yeah. uh, AI is better these days. Uh, <laughs> It's claimed that Mushroom said that Lena was, quote, almost as pretty as Lenor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. That's the one that was said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Damon uh, got yeah, that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He also claims Alicent said to Lenor on Joffrey's birth, do keep trying, Sir Lenor. Sooner or late, you may get one who looks like you. Uh-huh. <laughs> exact quote on the show. Yeah, huh? that one was good. Allison said that, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Yep. It's just in, in Fire and Blood, Mushroom is the source for Allison saying that. Okay. So yeah. Okay. Just, I believe it. Yeah. That one I believe. Absolutely. Yeah. And here's one of the biggest of all, saving the best for last. And remember what we just said about his views on Amond. He claims Amond said the following. I have, wait, oh, my cup. I have never known anyone so strong as my sweet nephews. So let us drain our cups to these three strong boys. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So it's a good example of one where we all headcanoned that one for the most part. Like, it's so good, it's painful to admit it might not be true. (laughs) Because it's like, it came from Mushroom. It sounds maybe a little embellished. Like Because Mushroom may have improved the wording. Like, was Eamon really that eloquent? If Mushroom's saying it to his audience, he would want to like make the joke just right. Like a comedian, like you go through a few iterations until the joke is worded just properly. I think that might be at work here, but I'm fine with that. <laughs> I feel like on the show, this was an insult that he had practiced. For a really long time. I was thinking the same thing. I was even thinking that maybe Mushroom or whoever gave Amon that line is like, this is what you do. This is what you say. <laughs> I don't know. Uh... I do like the idea, though, that Eamon was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see my childhood bullies, my nemeses mm-hmm. again. What am I going to say to these? Well, yeah, like, I mean, I mean, knowing, <laughs> Eamon, all like, week knowing what one. we do about Eamon, he's probably got a whole like book of insults he <laughs> wants to like, we like aim at people and he just pulls them out whenever he needs to. ready. Yeah, he's just ready. It's not a bad strategy. I feel like I wish I'd do that sometimes. I would do that sometimes. I always come up with the best lines after the fact. Here's my favorite though, because it summarizes 
some of what George is saying about the type of source mushroom is, even as he's also pointing out that mushroom is accurate quite often, when it comes to the dragon seeds issue or saga, he claims to have tried to ride one of the dragons himself. One of the dwarfs' more amusing tales, it ends with Mushroom running across the ward of Dragonstone with the seat of his pantaloons on fire and nigh drowning when he leapt into a well to quench the flames. An actual case of liar, liar, pantaloons on fire. George doesn't use the word pantaloons that often, so it really stands out here. It's also just a funny word, let's be honest. Pantaloon. That's a comic word. Like, if you go to Krusty the Clown's school of funny words, that's in there, you know? It's right up there with Seattle. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think we're expecting to believe Mushroom on that one. Against that, though, we have him saying things like this, quote, Some singers can find glory even in a privy, Mushroom tells us, but it takes a fool to speak the truth. That's pretty wise. And like that one's one to take to heart because, yeah, like Patchface. That's when we come back to him where Patchface is like spitting visions and nonsense, but some of it's like dead accurate or going to come true and you better listen. But even if you maybe you can't understand it. How do you respond to that one, Kavita? This 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 piece of wisdom. I mean, one of the one of the tropes about fools, and whether or not this is true, we can't really say this might be an apocryphal thing, but one of the tropes about fools is that they did have the license to speak truth to power in a way that other people did not. Yeah. And they become kind of emblematic of these types of relationships, this relationship between a monarch and one person in their court in particular who is obviously definitionally below them in status, but who for whatever reason has their confidence. We see like, obviously Davos is not a fool, but we see Stannis and Davos having this kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. We do not see Robert having this relationship with anyone other than maybe Ned, who's not even there most of the time. Mm. So it's it's a popular trope and it's a one that exists for a reason but I don't know if I can necessarily come up with real-world examples other than sort of Will Summers is one of those fools, one of those historical court jesters who supposedly had this kind of relationship with Henry VIII. Mm. And I know on the Showtime series, The Tudors, they actually had Will Summers as a character, and they had him kind of as Henry's confidant during one of the later seasons where he was trying to figure out what to do under certain circumstances. Mm. Right on. Well said. Okay, so Mushroom sort of sailed off into the sun. Well, he sailed into the sunrise because he sailed east, basically. He sailed into towards Essos. He began in King's Landing, or at least his story did, since as we know not when and where he was born. We said at the beginning that he left for Essos and never seemed to return. That we know of. It is actually possible that he returned to Westeros at some point. I mean, he did live a long life, apparently, since we said he at least lived past the year 157, which is 26 years after the dance, because he did outlive Aegon III, and that's the year... Aegon III died. It's a bad job to have. Literally, they said that's the king who doesn't laugh. Yeah, like what? Yeah, you, you definitely need to move on from that one. So it, was, it wasn't the blood and murder and front row seat to the worst humanity has to offer. It was the lack of an audience that <laughs> caused him to move on. <laughs> He's like, oh, I can, I can handle all the murder and death and cruelty, but people not laughing at my jokes, we can't have that. So he moved north to White Harbor with Lord Manderley. When Manderley left the Regency to return home, Lord Manderley apparently was all about laughing. He stayed at White Harbor for a while, probably a good place to be. The annals of White Harbor, if we knew them, 
could maybe provide evidence of Mushroom's existence, but we don't have access to that. You know, there's always a chance he gets mentioned later. He, he could be mentioned in Fire and Blood too because of the Baylor stuff and, and the, the burnings. There's some other possibilities, you know, maybe in A Song of Ice and Fire, he gets mentioned again. Maybe Tyrion has caused him to cite him. This is the last written of him in Fire and Blood, however. The later volumes of his testimony, filled with colorful accounts of his life in White Harbor, his sojourn at the court of the Sea Lord of Bravos, his voyage to the port of Ibn, and his years amongst the mummers of the Lisping Lady, are valuable in their own right, though less useful to our purpose here. So, sadly, the little man with the foul tongue must pass from our story. Though never the most reliable of chroniclers, the dwarf spoke truths no one else dared speak and was often droll besides. (laughs) Yes, he was. He was often droll besides. So yeah, I don't think it's a vain hope that we get more on Mushroom. Maybe not like details about him, about his life, although we might be to extrapolate stuff based on what we do get. What do you think, Kavita? What are your hopes here? So in addition to asking George if he thinks Mushroom is a re- if the testimony of Mushroom was actually written by a real person named Mushroom, I would like to ask him which were the books that Baylor asked <laughs> yeah. to be Give us a full list. Yeah, we may get closer to I that. I want to know. Like, were they dragon books? Were they Romchi books? Mm. Were they like oh. books about other religions? Like, I want to know what were the books he wanted burned. Hmm. But it's honestly the variety of stories that makes me more like all the fact that there's so many of these different stories. And you look at that last section, even there's like four different lifetimes worth of experiences that, yes, they could all have happened to one person. But it seems to me that this is a collective story, that Mushroom is a convenient pseudonym for multiple people. And if you look at sort of, for instance, the the city chronicles of the 15th and 16th centuries, they're usually amended by multiple people. Like it starts off with one person writing it and then someone else picks up. And so like the Dread Pirate Roberts theory of Mushroom, (laughs) except that in this case, it's even more of a collective. Like you've got lots of people contributing stories. And then in the end, you end up with this text that contradicts itself, that doesn't necessarily hold together, that doesn't make sense. But it does offer kind of a bird's eye view of what lots of different people thought. So potentially. Right on. Okay. Yeah. I really love the way the name suggests that. We have so many, the name, this is what we brought up at the beginning, kind of to circle back. Ashea brought up the the euphemism for mushroom, which is fitting because he's such a sexual character. And then we brought up fancies sprout like mushrooms after a hard rain, which is a variety of rumors about a particular event, which is what you're characterizing mushroom as, as a being, which is so fitting. So George really created a character that suggests and supports a number of theories, a number of takes, a number of, it's just really well made. And that's awesome because it doesn't seem like a particularly important character. Seems like just a way to support the fun of the story. But when you dig into it, it's like, this is really well thought out and it just fits and works really well as a point of discussion, as a springboard for the interesting topics we had today and others that are surely possible that we didn't have time for or didn't conceive of. Yeah. Once again, George. You know, just thinking about the idea too, how mushrooms are sometimes nutritious and tasty, but sometimes poisonous. And maybe the Mm. stories of mushrooms are similar. Sometimes they're adding value and fleshing things out, but sometimes they're making us suspect the truth of it or tanking someone's reputation or whatever. Good point. Mm -hmm. Good point. 
couple of comments from folks as we make our way out here. Moralee says, just a show of love and support for everything history of Westeros. Love you guys and the kitties. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe long, time for Sean to grab a cat while we're... Able, we should have, should have long look at Xerxes during that That's true. We got a dog. We got a cat. We could have another cat. Yeah, we Brandilyn Price says, not really a deep question, but I was wondering if Dr. Kavita thinks Gildane is a nod to Gildas at all. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Gildas is... So just for context, Gildas was a... 5th or 6th century historian writing in Latin in what is now the United Kingdom. We don't, I'm not sure exactly where he was located, but he is actually another of the early supposed sources for King Arthur. He only mentions him in passing. He mentions him as this Roman warlord who happened to be active against the Saxons, but that's what makes him relevant because he is one of our earliest sources for the existence of that guy named Arthur who might have eventually become known as King Arthur. Okay, mm. very good, very good. Oh, we got another oh, cat. There's another Yay. cat. Additional cat. Yay. Oh, there she oh, is. Oh, a tortie. Oh, yeah. so pretty. Yeah, pretty torty girl. Oh, look at her looking right up. What a star. Oh, yeah, she's like, I'm a fancy yeah, cat. Yeah, <laughs> good, good girl. Art. Whereas my other dog has <laughs> slept through this in <laughs> Good job. Good doggo. Yeah, good dog. <laughs> Our trivia question. The question was, who had this line? They cooked it with mushrooms and apples and it tasted like triumph. The quote is Cersei. And what being what's being referred to is the boar that killed Robert Baratheon. That's uh, what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that sounds like a Cersei yeah. And Christina K got there first. Very nice. quick. Immediately. Nice. So she quick. Other people good, guessed correctly K. too, but hers was much faster. Cool. Right on. I'm glad a few uh, people got that one. Not too surprised <laughs> Christina K got it first. She's a lot of times on top of these things. Very good. A few other episodes we mentioned. Don't forget, next week is Battle of the Trident. We d I didn't technically mention our Dance of the Dragons coverage with Radio Westeros, but it is certainly coverage of a lot of these events. Septon Barth episode. That's a big one. A different look at an important source. Episode six of our preview of House of the Dragon was Kavita's first appearance on History of Westeros. So if you want to check that out, there were some great discussions. And Kavita, remind everybody again where to find you both on the internet, but also other episodes you've appeared on. Okay, yes, as you mentioned, I was on the episode six preview of House of the Dragon here. I have also, I was also on the House of the Dragon recap episode, the end of season recap on Learned Hands. And there have been a couple of others. I also actually am part of a podcast that uh, that goes through Our Flag Means Death. Yay. We've been on a bit of a hiatus nice. for personal reasons, but we are hoping to get another episode out soon, especially because there's so much news about Our Flag Meets Death. Yeah. So that's Plenty all of time exciting. before season two. Exactly. We got time. Yeah. That and I can be found. I've written a bunch of essays about House of the Dragon, Adaptation, Fire and Blood. If you want to hear any more details about my various mushroom theories, that is usually where you can find them on my blog, which is kdmfin.wordpress.com. And I can also be found on Tumblr as Poor Shadows Painted Queens, where I will occasionally answer weird questions about A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Excellent. Well, you are amazing. Thank you very much for coming. We really yeah. appreciate your time and your great thoughts. I learned a lot. I, I expect the listeners did as well. And Sean and Ashea too. I, yeah. I can't speak for them, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> no, I was glad that we could have you on when Sean was on because obviously before it was a spoilery topic. So he had gotten <laughs> to meet you before. So I was glad to get that. 
Oh yeah. No, and also my the shirt that I'm wearing is a Shakespeare shirt. Oh yeah. All the female characters oh. from the first tetralogy. Oh, so, hell yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, it was. But actually, we should point out our shirts. Sean is wearing mm-hmm. one of the History of Westeros shirts with the pink egg because Sean's last name is Pink, so he needs oh. he deserved pink. I'm wearing the gang goes to Ice and Fire Con, which is relevant because <laughs> Sean brought up Ice and Fire Con today. But I was just thinking about the con and, and and felt like wearing the shirt. And I have the King, Long Live the King, Viserys Targaryen shirt. Yeah, which is with the his TV mask. version, House of the Dragon version. Yeah. yeah, I actually got Aziz isn't wearing it right now, but I got like that the the crown that is on that the Viserys and Jaehaerys and Rhaenyra crown. crown. I got Aziz a ring version of it, like a yeah. small ring Ooh. for his hand. It's really cool. It's a really nice ring. Sometimes. I don't wear rings yes. while recording because it's too easy to yeah to click, tap click, on something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds um. and clicks and. Banging sounds, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nope. Rings are no-go for recording wow. studios, at least for me. Anyway, folks, thank you to our patrons and Spotify subscribers. Those are both the most direct ways to support the show with a monthly recurring subscription of a level of financial contribution that you choose. You can also make a one-time donation during a live stream or at historyofwestros.com using the big donate button. Thanks as well to Nina for her great takes. Worked out a lot of good details there. She had a lot of good insight as well. And we're looking forward to having her on the show in two weeks. So that's great. And thanks as well to Joey, Jesse, and Bran, and Michael Klarfeld for our music, our videos, our maps. You guys are amazing. Michael Klarfeld is back in the map game again. He takes, he comes in and out of it, you know, when you know, yeah, switched, his creative he's, he's energy comes in. He switched gears to the Stormlands suddenly. He has Westerlands and the North in progress, but all of a sudden he was like, I'm switching to this. And that's how yeah. the creative process works. I love it. Yep, that is uh, indeed. You can never yeah. predict where <laughs> Sudden Stormlands. <laughs> so, which, uh, which also means that we might switch out the maps eventually here. Yep. We haven't switched out them out in a while because I, I do like the known we world just, one. Known world is good but I, I should yeah. switch it out for the Stormlands and, and whatnot eventually. Absolutely. Speaking of which, I've got Michelle Yeoh and the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon poster behind me, who's up for Best Actress, the Oscars. I'm excited to watch right after our podcast here. Oh, and such a good movie. I loved everything ever. Yeah. So good. Yeah. I agree. I'm, I'm waiting to see who wins, but I'm going to put out a little one-minute reviews of all the Best Picture nominees. And I, the last one I saw was Women Talking, which, man, that blew me away. I oh, highly recommend cool. Women Talking okay, to anyone. Great. Definitely subscribe. I'll definitely watch your one-minute clips. Yeah, sure. definitely subscribe to Dancing Sean on YouTube if you want to catch his reviews on the Best Picture nominees and on his other topics. So good to have a subscription locked in already. So whenever things come out, you're ready for it. All right, folks, that is it for this episode of History of Westeros podcast. We will see you next time. You know what to do in the meantime. Bella Reredis. 